got to a certain point I was outside the vehicle and I was trying to fight from the engine block, you know, because you actually had some cover. There's like these four or five dudes up on the rooftop that are firing down at us. Our 50 cal gunners fire in a different way. And these dudes are up on the rooftop firing down at us. So I'm engaged in these guys and we're, we're going back and forth. I have, you know, M4, so it's not like a 240 or a 50 cal. So I'm trying to engage these guys. So I'm trying to get my 50 cal gunner's attention so he can kind of shift over and help me out. And, and I think that was another point when I really realized like, hey, this isn't the normal engagement. Welcome to Combat Story. I'm Ryan Fugit and I serve Warzone Tours as an Army Attack helicopter pilot and CIA officer over a 15 year career. I'm fascinated by the experiences of the elite in combat. On this show, I interview some of the best to understand what combat felt like on their front lines. This is Combat Story. Today we hear the combat story of longtime Special Forces veteran, Ranger, and sniper Daryl Utt, who spent 26 years in the service, most of that in special operations across 10 deployments. Daryl tracked down Pifwicks, persons indicted for war crimes in Kosovo, was part of one of the craziest infills into Iraq you'll ever hear, used a honeypot to lure out an HVT, developed a devastatingly effective human network, and led countless kill capture operations taking down dozens of HVTs and detaining hundreds of extremists and their leaders. What's great about Daryl is that he always put himself in harm's way ahead of his troops, which is not always the case. His ODA earned the coveted Larry Thorne Award, which goes to the best special forces unit for the work they did during one deployment to Iraq. Daryl himself earned the Major General Robert T. Frederick Top Operator Award, which goes to the top special forces NCO in the Army. Since leaving the service, Daryl has taken on a role helping to build the future of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation, which is on a mission to deliver education, leadership, and inspiring spaces for learning and reflection to preserve, share, and harness the stories, lives, and impact of Medal of Honor recipients. I couldn't imagine anyone better suited to represent the stories and lives of our Medal of Honor brethren than Daryl. I hope you enjoyed this interview chock full of creative, and gut-wrenching combat stories as much as I did. Before we get into this combat story, I want to share something I've created to help transitioning and former military, government, and law enforcement who are looking for something more fulfilling professionally. When I left the service, I was lucky to have stumbled into a meaningful and high-paying job at Google in the trust and safety industry, where I was once again disrupting bad actors and keeping billions of people safe online while getting paid a tech salary. I'd never heard of this industry before, and there's absolutely no training to help you get started. So I created the Trust and Safety Institute. Stick around, because at the end of the episode, I'll tell you how to make more money with skills you already have in a rapidly growing and global and rewarding industry in big tech. And now, back to this incredible combat story. Daryl, thanks for taking the time to share your story with us today. Yeah, it's, uh, it's my privilege to be here. This is great. Thank you. So I want to kick off with a lot of the coordination you and I have been doing uh, was only possible because of Jordan Becker, who is a uh, commonality between us. And he is the fourth person I interviewed for this classmate of mine um, from college and ROTC. Obviously, I went the aviation route. He went special forces. He's still in um, uh, active duty. But at the tail end of that interview, I asked him, hey, if somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, Jordan, tomorrow you got to go back into combat with two people, who would it be? 
And he said, Mike Bartlett, who sadly he, he described had passed, and Daryl Utt, um, who he described as brilliant and credits you, by the way, with keeping him married by giving him uh, perspective on how to manage a family life while being in the military, which is not easy to do. So I wanted to just start off with, hey, Jordan's our commonality. How did you get to know him the first time? Yeah, that's, uh, that's humbling to hear to hear that. Um, that's very humbling. Uh, Jordan, uh, I, uh, I, I doubt the whole brilliance comment, but I'll take it. I'll take it. Uh, I actually think Jordan is, is brilliant. He's currently, he's currently instructing up at West point. Um, very sharp guy, but, uh, I crossed paths with Jordan in 2007. Uh, we were both in Baghdad together and, uh, at that time I was on my fourth rotation. Um, so we had just got in country and, um, we had, we had a, um, we had a really robust mission. Uh, we went from, you know, normally you have kind of a small sector that you're in charge of. Uh, we found ourselves in 2007, we had the entire country of Iraq that we could reach out and touch with a prolific human intelligence network. And I say prolific, it, it was really impressive. Uh, so that's what we were doing. Um, we were a well-oiled kill capture machine, that rotation. Uh, our previous team leader was just rotating out and uh, Jordan Becker came in and he took over our detachment and he, he jumped right in and he, he, helped, uh, he helped with meeting folks and, and doing the intel and, and I knew instantly that Jordan was going to work out uh, fabulous on our detachment. Um, we were doing a meeting um, and then it was kind of like a meeting after the meeting and I needed to talk to a few of the NCOs. And um, I called, the, called him off to the side and, and Jordan walked over and he's like, hey, can I, can I be part of this meeting? And I was like, hey, sir, not this one. You don't want to be part of this one. And uh, he's like, okay, roger that. And uh, he walked away and I instantly knew right then that, you know, he's going to be a good team leader because he could have tried to say, Hey, I, I want to stay here, but, but he listened and, um, and he did a great job that rotation. He did a great job. Yeah. I, I'm almost frustrated with him now having, having done research for this interview, because he's just so humble and really didn't share too much about what he did. And I know from the time you all spent together, you guys were in some serious, um, some serious events together. I, I wish that I had drawn more out of him, but I'm so grateful that he connected us. So anyway, that's our, our point in common, which I thought was a great way to kick us off here. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to move next because we got a lot of ground to cover, but I want to start, I want to start with West Virginia. I, I understand that's where you grew up. You do not sound to me to have the West Virginia accent. I feel like it's more North Carolina, which might come from the many years you spent in SF. But <laughs> yeah. you talk to us a little bit about growing up in West Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I grew up in Huntington, West Virginia, born and raised. Um, I, you know, I left when I was 18, though, and, and my first duty station was West Coast in California. So maybe that kind of took away my accent a little bit. But Definitely did. Uh, it's nice, nice pickup on North Carolina because I sure did spend a spend a lot of time there in North Carolina. Um, but yeah, man, I come from humble, humble beginnings, which I think is a very 
nice, polite way to say that I grew up poor. Um, kind of had a tough, tough childhood. Uh, tough kid, you know, uh, average student. But I was a, uh, you know, I grew up hunting, grew up fishing, grew up trapping. Uh, sorry, PETA. I was a kid. Uh, I don't trap anymore, but uh, that was a source of income for us. And it helped out for uh, around Christmas and things like that with, with selling the pelts. But um, yeah, I guess you could say that my childhood and then eventually turned into sports and football and all of those type of things really prepared me for for my future, you know, cause my high school football coach, you know, I, I played all the sports growing up, baseball, basketball, football. I think I played basketball because that was my dad's thing. You know, he, he loved basketball growing up and I think he kind of wanted me to, to maybe follow in his footsteps, but I just did not have that skill. I think I was probably a little more aggressive for playing basketball, <laughs> uh, really took to football though played football ever since I was a little kid all the way up till I graduated was a decent, you know, decent football player by no means, you know, not a scholarship division one Alabama kind of guy, but just an average, you know, high school kid uh, played sports. But interestingly enough, our, uh, our football coach was a 19th group, uh, a special forces group guy, uh, coach Thornburg. And little did I even, you know, know it at the time, but he was basically, you know, coaching us up and kind of leading us like an operational detachment alpha and ODA. So, you know, we did physical training and we did weightlifting and, you know, we did all kinds of things. Uh, and, and I think he had such a huge impact on my, my life and my eventual career that I really didn't even, you know, I couldn't, my young mind couldn't even really comprehend the things that he was kind of shaping me and preparing me and toughening me up because, uh, you probably remember this. I think you're an athlete in school, right, Ryan? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Man, there's such a big difference if you're a freshman in high school and you're like 14 and you're going up against like grown men that are With like beards. 18. Yeah. 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 And you've like not even reached puberty yet or just barely there. And you're, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I mean, there's just such a gap there. And uh, man, we got we got beat up pretty good, uh, by, by our seniors, but I'm glad they did it because it toughened us up. And, uh, and that was, you know, that was real important to, to kind of have that upbringing and you, uh, you get knocked down, you get back up. I mean, that was just so many life lessons that, you know, looking back on that, you know, it sucked, uh, going through it, but, uh, like but most man, things, the yeah. things that suck going through it usually, are pretty memorable in a positive way in the end. For sure, man. Looking back on that, it was just, I mean, it was, it was good. It was solid. Can, can I ask you, Daryl, you're probably the fifth or sixth person I've interviewed at, at a 70. So I'm not saying it's a huge percentage, but not insignificant any longer who did trapping growing up. And all of them, it came from humble, as you said, AKA poor roots. Yeah. Look, I grew up overseas in embassies and like when I came to the U S for high school, I lived in the suburbs. So I was by no means out hunting and fishing. What is trapping? Like for those of us who, who didn't live that, like, what does that entail? So we had a uh, gosh, you're really going to get me in trouble with PETA, uh, going down some of these. So <laughs> no, had, like, like you made money on this. Like I, I, th that's yeah, important. Yeah. I want to talk about that for a second. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, so we had like these creeks, not the, the main rivers, but 
uh, I mean, of course we had rivers in West Virginia, but we, we primarily trapped on the smaller creeks because they're less dangerous and things like that. But we have like, you know, a leg trap and we trapped muskrats. So it's kind of like a rat that swims around in the water and, you know, people pay for, for the pelts. So, um, so we would, we would use, you know, we would go to these creek, ba creek banks and, uh, you know, my dad taught me how to do all this stuff. We'd kind of like dig inside, uh, the bank kind of have like a little hole there. And then my dad would, would typically have like a slice of apple and kind of stick it in the back, uh, with like a little piece of, uh, twig, you know, a little piece of, of a branch or something kind of stick it back there. Then you set the leg trap and then you have it, you have it secured like on a, on a stake. And then the muskrat goes in there to, to get the apple and he ends up getting, getting into the trap. And then you come and you police all that up and, uh, you kind of, you haul in your, your bounty there and then you go back and you got to skin them all up and, and dry them out. And then you end up selling them. I Once imagine. again, I was, I was a kid. I was a kid. <laughs> hey, it was a gotta, good experience. You got to eat, you know, like you yeah. got to have money. So, right. Just, it just um, reminds me of, obviously, when you went through selection and all this training, you've already been in the woods doing this stuff. And then you got people like me coming from the suburbs. <laughs> it's not even fair. It's not a fair fight at that point. Anyway, hey, there's something you brought up as we were coordinating this Camp Dawson, I think it was in West Virginia. What is the significance there um, for you? Well, yeah, uh, Camp Dawson is, a, you know, significant for a lot of people, uh, a few people that I've listened to from your podcast, uh, some fascinating stories. I, I wish I remember the guy's name that I just listened to, but he was like a mu musician, you know, and uh, he was Brad a, Thomas. He, yeah. Oh, Delta. man. Yeah. yeah, that was cool. You know, Ranger uh, Delta guy. Um, real cool. Listen to him talk about, you know, West Virginia, which, you know, that's that's where the guys go through selection. But back to my high school football coach, coach Thornburg, um, you know, he saw a few of us that had potential and, and had the desire and, you know, probably he knew that our families didn't have, you know, the money to send us to college. Uh, so I think he was, he was looking out for us and, uh, and it was, you know, it kind of benefited him as well. Cause they had these, these national guard, like drill sergeants that were going to be up at camp Dawson. So they needed like, somebody to practice on, you know? So, uh, coach Thornburg was like, Hey man, I know a few of you guys, you know, you want to join the Marines. You you're thinking about the army. You want to do air force, whatever. We got a program. We can take you up to camp Dawson, um, let you get a taste for it. See if you like it. If you don't like it, that's cool. But if you do, then, you know, you, you know what you want to do, you know? Uh, but before we went to camp Dawson though, he's pretty, pretty smart guy. He had a hunting cabin up there that he did a lot of hunting up in the mountains. So, uh, it was free labor. So he took us to the, uh, to the hunting cabin and we did a bunch of, you know, tasks around there and carried a bunch of heavy stuff that they didn't want to do. They did feed us really well. Uh, so that was cool. But then they took us up to camp Dawson and, uh, talk about the mountains, you know, like, like where I'm from in West Virginia, it's Huntington. Um, so it's the Southwest part of the state and yeah, there's mountains there, but not like the northeast part of West Virginia, you know, close to like Pittsburgh and all, or uh, Pennsylvania. So, uh, so dude, man, we went into the mountains and it was almost like made me dizzy, you know, being on the bus uh, headed in there. It was just like, golly, these are some mountains up here. 
but yeah, we, so we did Camp Dawson and, and, uh, we got bossed around, we did a PT test, you know, we didn't even know what that stuff was yeah. like, Hey, you're going to do some pushups. You're going to do some setups. You're going to do a two mile run. And of course, you know, we're 18. So we're like, yeah, bring that on. And, you know, they did the trash can thing, waking us up in the morning and, and we kind of had fun with it. Uh, and it, it was, it was a good experience though. Um, uh, you know, I enjoyed it. My, um, I also played football in high school and I distinctly remember one of my coaches, Steve Myers to this day, like had a huge influence on me in terms of like work ethic. And like, he's the one who taught me how to lift the right way, uh, get in the weight room, running routes. But he also, he took me up to the woods in Northern Florida to go hunting one time. And I think it was more of like, we got to get a little of the suburbs out of you, Ryan, like get you, get you uh, aligned with nature a little bit, but I was also on a track to the military, but yeah, so it's, cool it's, stuff. it's amazing how important those coaches, those types of personalities can be in your life. Oh yeah, man. Definitely. Daryl, for you, was the army always the the primary direction or was it the Marines? You said it was, it was the Marines, man. I wanted to, uh, you know, no one in my family had ever joined the Marines. So I thought that was kind of cool. It's like, Oh, you know, you know, obviously you want to represent your family and, and make your family proud. And I remember talking to my dad and talking about his dads and uncles and, you know, serving during the war and all that. And, and I, you know, I heard some of these stories and it seemed like every, you know, somebody was in the Navy or somebody was in the army and all this. And I never heard Marines. So I, I asked my dad, I was like, has, has anybody ever been in the Marine Corps? It's like, no. So that was kind of like, boom, I, I wanted to do that. I was, you know, I had a Marine Corps t-shirt that I was, I was sporting, you know, running around thinking I was cool in high school. I had the Marine Corps sticker on the back of my beat up car, you know, my junior and senior year. And, I thought that's what I really wanted to do. And I was, I was stoked about it. So, so yeah. What, what changed? What happened? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I was talking to a recruiter and at this, at this point, um, you know, my dad had, had said, Hey, you know, you should, uh, you should try to get a skill. You know, if you're going to do the military, that's cool. You know, maybe try to get a skill and then serve a couple of years, then you get your free college money and then you get out, you go to school and then you go, you know, start your life and do a job and you got, you got a college education, you got a skill and you'll be set. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good deal. And, uh, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, like most people, you have the slightest idea when you're 17, what you want to do the rest of your life. So for some reason, I don't know how, but I thought I wanted to be an air traffic controller in the Marine Corps. I thought that sounded cool. And, uh, so I was talking to my recruiter in Huntington, West Virginia and did my testing, did all that. And he was like, Hey man, you're good to go. You want to be an air traffic controller? Awesome. Want to be in the Marines? Great. Let's do it. I was like, all right. So, uh, MEPS, the military insurance processing stations in Beckley. So that's kind of like where you got to go to MEPS to, uh, to sign your final, you know, paperwork and do your physical and do all that stuff. Right. So I, I left home and went to Beckley and uh, I was up there and did all my testing, thought everything was great. And, uh, and then I finally got back to the office with the Marine Corps guy, a different guy. And he calls me in and uh, he's like, oh, okay, so, you know, you want to be in the Marines? Like, yep, yep. And uh, he's like, uh, 
air traffic controller, huh? I was like, yes, sir. Be an air traffic controller. And he's like, son, you don't have the scores to be an air traffic controller. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, uh, I didn't know what to say. You know, I mean, it's a little intimidating. If, if you probably remember from those days, sure. being a young kid and you're talking to some dude that's all decked out, you know, and uh, I, I remember being a little intimidated and he's just telling me that I don't have the scores. And, and I was like, well, what can I do? And he's like, well, son, you want to be a Marine, right? And I was like, yes, sir. I want to be a Marine. And he's like, okay, all right. Well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get you signed up. We're going to send you down to Paris Island and uh, you're going to go to boot camp and you're going to have an open contract. And then at the end of uh, boot camp, the Marines will let you know what you're going to be. And I was like, you know, I, I was trying to soak that in, you know, like, uh, okay. And luckily, luckily my dad had kind of given me, uh, given me an out and he's like, Daryl, if anything happens and you're not comfortable with it, just say, Hey, I need to call my dad. Uh, if anything changed, he wanted to know. And he, you know, so, uh, thank goodness I was able to you know, convince this Marine Corps dude that like, Hey, I need to call my dad and talk to him about this. And, and I talked to my dad on the phone and I was like, you know, I, this doesn't make any sense to me. And he goes, listen, you know, I, I know you want to be in the Marines and this is awesome, but an open contract, like they can do anything with you. Like, and I was like, I don't think they'll do that though. And he's like, they can do anything. They'll give you any job. And uh, he goes, do you want to be in the Marine Corps bad enough to where maybe you're on a Navy ship, like making eggs and breakfast for everyone else on the ship? And I was like, heck no. He goes, well, you, that could be a possibility. He goes, I know you, you would be miserable. Uh, you can't do this. You, you can't do an open contract. There's just no way. I know you want to do it. Your heart's set on it, but you can't do it. So uh, so by the time I got back in there and was getting ready to talk to the Marine Corps dude, uh, a result, one of the results from my physical came back and I had a cyst uh, in my left wrist. And uh, so we didn't really have to kind of go through this whole, do you want to be a Marine Corps? You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we didn't have to do that because when I walked back in there, he's like, hey, son, uh, you're not going to be able to join today. You've got a cyst in your uh, left wrist. You're going to have to get it uh, taken out. And then once you get that, bring your paperwork back up and we'll get you all set up. We'll make you a Marine. I was like, okay, got out of there, got my surgery, got fixed up. And, uh, you know, no offense to the Marine Corps. Cause I love the Marine Corps. Uh, I love, I love that branch, but, um, it, it wasn't a good fit for me. So I switched over to the army and here I am. Can we just for a second, like you did 30 years, Daryl in 26 and a half, 26 yeah. and a half years in like the, the combat arms and SF for mo most of it, most of it in special forces. Yeah. What, I mean, can you even think back to what your life would be like if you were an air traffic controller, no di disrespect to ATC right. folks at all, but just like, it doesn't seem like you have the temperament to want <laughs> to do that as opposed to something like the SF world. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, man, it's just, you know, life, there's these like little curveballs, and, Man. you know, it's like things happen and, and I'm, you know, it's like, wow, I'm glad that that didn't work out for me. And, uh, the army, the army has been great to me, man. I mean, 
it's uh, it's been it's been great to me yeah. for sure. I, I know we'll get into a lot of this. So it sounds like you had a great relationship with your father, at least. So going into yeah. the military wasn't tough. And what did he do in Vietnam? You you mentioned. No, my dad wasn't in the service, but his dad and all of uh, okay. his dad's uncles and stuff like that. My my dad wasn't in in Vietnam. He didn't serve. And so he wasn't opposed to you joining. He just wanted to help you make the right decision, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for okay. sure. He's a smart guy. <laughs> so uh, if I recall, you join in 90, right? So, yep. but you don't end up going to the Gulf War. Is that right? Right. We, uh <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was light infantry, so I was Seventh Infantry Division, light. So, uh, so they didn't need us in in the desert. Um, we stayed out of it, and and interestingly enough, you know, our unit did participate in a Just Cause in Panama. So, okay. so they were over there. So there were a few of those guys, you know, when I got through basic training in AIT, and I showed up. You know, we looked at those guys because they had combat patches and all that, and we were like, oh man you know, they were in Panama and, you know, looking back now, it's like, man, those guys are probably passing out MREs. They didn't see much combat or anything like that. Um, but anyway, we, at the, at the time we thought it was a big deal. You know, it's like, man, these guys yeah. are like heroes to us because they had combat patches and CIBs and, um, but yeah, so, so we weren't in desert shield, desert storm. Um, and we just, you know, we trained, uh, we trained really hard. Uh, you know, I was part of a cohort cohort unit, which was like an experimental thing. You know, we all went to basic together in AIT as one big unit. Oh, interesting. And then we all graduated together and then we all went to Fort Ord. So, uh, so that was kind of a, a cool, neat experience, but yeah, when I came in, I was supposed to do two years in California at Fort Ord, which is in Monterey, which is, it's beautiful. It's Terrain. yeah. It's beautiful. I was just telling someone the other day, uh, one of the guys I work with now, um, we were talking about it. I was like, man, I was a little, you know, I was a young kid. I didn't know any better. I thought that that's how the army was. Like you go and there's nice beaches, there's the ocean in the background and you're like shooting out on the range. Like, man, this is just how it is. This army stuff is pretty cool. You like, they pay me to shoot. Like, this is awesome. You know, weather's great. Sunny. Yeah. Yeah. California weather. Everybody who's been to Fort Polk is laughing right now. Oh yeah. Gosh, Fort Polk is miserable. Yeah. Okay. So, so your light infantry, was there any concern that you had with the Gulf war going on? You guys weren't there for it. Yeah, man, you know how it is. It's like, you're missing out, you know, it's like, I, I, I do remember going through basic and they showed us all the pictures. Like they scare you to death and it's like, Hey, this is someone that just had anthrax or, you know, sarin or whatever you know they show you all these pictures and they scare you to death so you can like i'm really going to put my protective mask on yeah. and i'm going to know how to put you know all my gear on properly to protect myself but that that was something i thought about was like man you know saddam hussein you just don't really know what he's capable of but i think overall though it was kind of like man everyone in the army seems like they're over there and we're back here in california yeah. training and yeah it's mm -hmm. like we're missing out. Okay. So you obviously make up for that with plenty of time downrange. So if we can jump, and I'm going to ask you what a PIFWIC is, for those who don't know, strange okay. acronym. And then if you could tell us a little bit more about your involvement with that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So we're fast forwarding here. Um, 
a Pithwick is a personnel invited, uh, indicted for war crimes, personnel indicted for war crime, Pithwick, uh, army loves acronyms. I mean, most of the, most of the services love acronyms. So, um, so I was involved with the Pithwick mission, uh, originally in, uh, Bosnia and we were doing more on a compartmentalized Intel collection. So more, more so not on the hunting side, but more so on collecting and pattern of life, if you will, uh, not the breach a door and shoot and all that type of stuff. So, um, so got to do that and got to experience that. And that was kind of cool. You know, I don't know what it ever led to, but, but we did a lot of work, man. We were there for like a month, just, just nailing some pattern of life stuff, uh, doing a lot of things with vehicles actually. Uh, so then you fast forward to, uh, 2003, 2004, which is a little late into the whole Pithwick deal, you know? Uh, and by this time we were in Kosovo, we'd been in Kosovo for years and years and years. I spent so much time in Kosovo. It's crazy. Um, so we had just came back from our first deployment to Iraq. Uh, so we had that experience under our belt and then, uh, we were set up to do special reconnaissance, which I'd done special reconnaissance in Kosovo since like 1999. This time it's like 2003, 2004, and thought we were gonna be doing reconnaissance uh, on the border, you know, Montenegro and Serbia and all that type of stuff. And, uh, and these Pithwicks kind of fell in our laps. It was like, hey, we got some Pithwicks and all the national level assets had already moved to, Iraq and Afghanistan. So they still had some Pithwicks running around and uh, they needed some people to go capturing them, capture them. So, uh, so we were like, man, this is great. Let's, let's do it. Uh, it's a lot more exciting doing Pithwicks than, than, you know, doing the special reconnaissance. So, so I think we had like four Pithwicks and didn't even care what, what they had done. Like didn't even matter to us. It was just like, Hey, we got a job, like whatever these dudes did, didn't care. Uh, we just wanted to go catch them. And, uh, so we had a pretty good start. I think we had like four of them and we had some fun with it, man. We had some fun with it because, you know, we kind of played off the, the deck of cards from Iraq, you know, like the most wanted, like the ace of spades yeah. and all that stuff. So we, we played off that and we used Uno cards. So one of the guys, uh, I'll say his initials, AJ, he's going to be the, uh, the, the prime person in this story, but uh, AJ, we made him the yellow draw two, and then we put his picture right there in the middle. <laughs> he was the yellow draw two most wanted Kosovo. Uh, so we tried to go to go get this guy. I think we'd had, we'd captured the other guy. He was like maybe the green six or something. I don't know what he was, but, uh, but so we go after, we, we, we rolled one guy up and that was cool. And we had a couple more, but AJ was was someone that was, from what I recall, he was, he was fascinated in technology. Like he loves, you know, tinkering around technology stuff. So um, I believe that he knew that, that he was wanted and we had uh, assets that were engaging with him saying, hey, I know some people that know some people and we can try to get this whole thing cleared up because I'm sure it's just, you know, it's a big misunderstanding. <laughs> uh, so we had it all set up that uh, AJ was going to come to this like little cafe place uh, in Kosovo and he was going to get all cleared up and he was going to be good to go. What he didn't know is uh, we were there waiting for him. We had the whole thing locked down. Um, 
we had guys inside, we had guys outside. I mean, we had, we had the place locked down and, uh, he was meeting with, with someone, one of the assets. And, uh, we just didn't have like anyone inside this cafe. Uh, we had a guy who I just, man, I have so much respect for just a great dude, Pat Quinn. He is a silver star recipient from, uh, from, um, OF one in, uh, 2003, just a golden gloves champion dude's just a beast. Uh, my best friend was in there, Matt Gerard, who's, uh, just another beast, dangerous, dangerous man. I mean, these are just two like guys you don't want to mess with. And, uh, of course they blended in great with, uh, with the location and all that. And, uh, man, I was wearing, I wish I had a picture of it. I was wearing this big long sleeve, like leather matrix type European, you know, deal thing. Oh, looked, I could see it. I could see oh, it. Oh man. Yeah. It was, it was looking cool, man. It was looking really cool. I was kind of looking a little bit like Vic Mackey with this big European, um, leather jacket on, but, um, I have to go back, you know, there was kind of like some intel that this guy might be a little bit dangerous. You know, he liked to carry a knife and, you know, he liked to talk the talk and all that stuff, but we kind of thought that was funny. It's like, all right, we'll see. We'll see what he does. But uh, he did have a knife on him though. He did have a, a pretty, I think he had some kind of K bar or something, but, but anyway, he, I think he gets up to, to do something and we collapse the target and it it's over like in a half a second. I mean, as soon as Pat and Matt put hands on this guy, he like dish rags, you know, he's just like, you know, and then they, uh, they put the goggles on and put the earmuffs on and zip zip ties and all that type of stuff. And, uh, we had a van that pulled up. So he's in the back of the van. I mean, it, it goes down in like six seconds. We all collapsed. It was, it was over. It was, it was textbook. So, uh, so that was cool. You know, that happened. And uh, we go back to, we go back to base and it was, it wasn't really that, I mean, it was a successful op, but it was like, that's cool. You know, it's fun. So probably a few hours go by and we get a call from the detention facility. And of course they don't know like that there's like a bigger special operations unit, you know, they just think like we're all together, I guess. And you know, so they called like our headquarters and they were like, Hey, uh, we wanted to talk to the guys that actually detained AJ and brought him into the, to the facility. So we got word of all this and we got the number to call <clears throat> and it surprised us a little bit. And we were a little bit, uh, you know, I guess we were a little bit taken back, like, man, wonder what they want to talk to us about. Like we didn't hurt the guy. We didn't punch the dude in the face. We didn't, you know, we didn't take yep. anything, you know, we didn't steal his money. Like we didn't do anything to this dude. We followed the rules, you know, we, it was clean. It was a clean op. And uh, I was like, man, we were a little, you know, defensive, I guess, about the whole thing. So, so we call these cats back and we're like all huddled around the phone. Like, I wonder, you know, is he making something up or what? And it was like, hey, this is uh, MPs over here at the detention facility at Camp Bonsteel, Kosovo. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, you guys brought this dude in, AJ. It's like, yeah. It's like, man, uh, we have never seen someone brought in like this. But I just want to let you know that evidently he was so scared, he shit all over himself. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I, I mean, to be that terrified, I guess, to to have that happen. Uh, it, 
it like shocked us a little bit, but it was, it was probably one of the funnier stories <laughs> that, uh, that had happened, you know, for that dude to be oh. that scared. It was just classic, man. Classic. That, that's like true textbook. You, everything went as planned and no fight. And he was so afraid that happened. Yeah. That, that was the yellow draw to Uno in the books, in the books. Yeah. I got to say the, I, I, I have to applaud the, um, the innovation using the Uno cards, but I, I will say the yellow draw two doesn't really have the same ring to like the, the ace of, of spades, you know? Right. Yeah. But yeah. I get it. Sure. You got it. You, it's what you have available and that's what you yeah. use. Yeah. Anything for some humor, man. You know how it is. I got to say, I think a lot of folks will be surprised to hear we were in Kosovo in 03, right? And I know oh, yeah. like, I was in Germany in 03 and, you know, like I, I knew we were there, but I think a lot of people would be surprised. How was it? And you were in an ODA at the time, and I know we skipped over that. So we'll jump back here in a second. But what was it like for you guys being in one of the groups, like one of the teams work in Kosovo instead of being over in Iraq or Afghanistan? Well, yeah, it, it, it flipped because we were like the prima donnas for years, you know, going back to the Serbian war and air war and all that type of stuff. Like we, we were the top dudes, you know, it was like 10th group that was heavily involved in Bosnia and uh, Kosovo when that, that whole thing happened. So, so we had all the missions, you know, and, and we would have like maybe fifth group that would come over and help support, like they would be with the UAE. You know, so it was kind of like they were getting like a little taste of, you know, we were just crushing it. You know, we thought we were we were the big dogs. And then once Afghanistan hit and we were on the sidelines and it was all of a sudden it was like that was the that was the theater. And and we, you know, we didn't have a an opportunity to, to jump in there. And that that really hurt. But yeah, man, for years we were kind of like the the top dudes. Oh you know because that then, was the only show in town that was the only it, fight back in the day it, yeah it was the only show in town and uh uh the money was good even though i didn't really see that part um because i got to i got to first battalion 10th group in stuttgart germany like 98 so so a lot of those like mid 90 trips to sarajevo and and all that i mean those dudes were crushing some per diem and it was a great place <laughs> to be and you know, they had some action and, and all of that. So, so yeah, kind of the roles reversed for us. And then, you know, we weren't in Afghanistan and, and that really hurt, but then Iraq kind of came yeah. back around. So, so we kind of had to do some finishing touches in Kosovo. And I think that's why we did the initial invasion in Iraq in 03. And then we came back and it was like, Hey, you guys still got to do this Kosovo thing, you know? And, and we had to eat that one, but you know, we had a great company commander who's still a mentor to me. Uh, I'd like to mention him, Gary Bloomberg's great dude. Uh, he, he was our company commander and loved working with Gary. And, um, you know, it was a good rotation. We had a lot yeah. of fun. Okay. Awesome. And, and we did, we jumped over your transition into the ODA. So like you were light infantry, was there a point in time where you said, Hey, I really got to go this different route and go SF. Like, I don't want to stay in this track I'm in. Yeah, I think that probably hit me. Um, that hit me maybe 1994 and 1995, you know, because Fort Ord, California shut down and then it, or, you know, deactivated. Uh, we went up to Fort Lewis, Washington for like a year. And, you know, so that's where I kind of got to see like second range battalion. So I was exposed to something else besides just a bunch of infantry dudes. 
And uh, I got mad respect for, for Ranger Regiment guys. And, uh, you know, I, I saw this firsthand, man. The, I mean, they just, they just had some studs. I mean, I, I, so I got to see that. I was like, oh, that's a little taste of something else. Like, these dudes are on a different level, bro. Like, these guys are, are on a different level. So I kind of got a little taste of that, what Ranger Regiment was all about, just from a distance. Uh, so that kind of like peaked a little bit of my curiosity. And then when I PCS to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, uh, little did I know, but, uh, you know, where, where I lived at the time, I took kind of like the back roads uh, and I was a rock there. I was in third battalion, yeah. 187th, I was a rock uh, but I, I would kind of take the range road to get to work. And, and that's where fifth special forces group is at Fort Campbell, you know, and, and I would see you know, these guys out there training and they weren't training like we were, like we were wearing helmets and body armor and all this yep. stuff, you know, and these dudes are just out there like wearing ball caps or boonies and they've got their deserts on. So it's like, and then I saw them all, you know, they were just constantly training and, and I'm thinking I'm seeing like the same guys over and over, but it's just like, you know, little did I know there's like 64 ODAs or whatever in fifth group and they're all rotating through training, but I'm like seeing like, Oh, look at these group, this group of guys, man, they're awesome. They're, they're just constantly their vehicles. out there. Yeah. They're doing sniper 24. rifle stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's when I really kind of got like hit with it. Like, man, that's something I want to do. I, I think I could do that. Uh, and then, yeah, that just one thing led to another and that kind of led me to selection and the Q course and all that. Did you talk to your old man, your coach, like anybody about it? Or was it just, Hey, I, this is something I want to go do. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, talk to my football coach and, uh, you know, he helped me kind of make some of those decisions, talk to my dad and he was very encouraging. And, uh, I was like, Hey man, if you want to do it, you got to go for it, get ready, get in shape. Uh, and of course, you know, I'm still like probably by this time I'm like 20 something, 21, 22. So I was in great shape but got in even better, better shape. Uh, we ended up doing like a six month rotation to Sinai, Egypt, and there's nothing to do over there, but run and rock out push up. Yeah. So, so I got in ridiculous shape, unfortunately, toward the end there, right before I came back home, I, uh, I broke my left fibula fast roping. So, cause oh. I was going to go, yeah, man, I was going to go to selection as soon as I got back. Cause I was in crazy, ridiculous shape, but that kind of, put a damper on things for a little bit. So I had to pick all that stuff back up. And then I ended up going to special forces assessment selection in, uh, in the fall of 96 and, and was successful, got picked up and ended up going through the Q course and, uh, all that. Man. Okay. Awesome. So we, we've touched on the, the Bosnia Kosovo bit, the Pifwicks. I want to jump into that kind of some of the post 9-11 fight as we talk about Iraq. And it seems like as I was doing research for this, there's a lot of uh, interesting, interesting, I think is the right term, names for operations that you're a part of. Some good and some bad. Let's start out with one of the, the, the not so glamorous ones, Ugly Baby. And just before describing what that was about, could you share your perspective on how if you believe operations sometimes take on the connotation of the names that they have. I don't know if you ever experienced that, but odd naming ops sometimes lead to strange outcomes. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not a big fan. I, I, 
you know, was a participant in, uh, in Operation Ugly Baby, but, and it, it was a significant operation and all that, but the name is just so dumb, you know, such a stupid name. Um, I don't think we really thought much of it at the time. I mean, of course we didn't really, you know, we didn't really know what it was going to turn into be and all that type of stuff. But uh, looking back, I mean, could you imagine like showing up in Vegas, like, Hey, I'm here for the 25th reunion of operation ugly baby. And they're probably like, you're an idiot. Like you even yeah. say for you to even say that you're dumb, get out of here. <laughs> but uh, now I do think if it had a cool name that there might be a reunion or t-shirts or something that people actually talk about nowadays, but, but I have actually been part of some really cool names and, and it's kind of like, yeah, you know, you look back at that and it's like, yeah, that was, that was a cool op, but, um, but yeah, it's just, you know, the naming thing. I mean, I don't know who came up with ugly baby, but that was dumb for sure. Yeah, certainly it was a captain I'm assuming in, <laughs> in a talk somewhere, a we staff officer. Somewhere. That's right. For yeah. sure. Um, yeah. yeah, I will say just on that when I was at uh, CIA and we have like, you know, crypts for different assets, you never wanted a bad one because it just it had it carried like a negative weight for whatever you were doing. So I, I can just imagine like ugly baby just doesn't sound good. Can you tell us what was involved in this? Where were you at in your career at the time? Um, please tell us about yeah. this great op, ugly baby. Yep, yep. So uh, you know, I started out my special forces career, luckily, you know, being forward deployed, which was kind of unheard of. Typically in special forces, you know they don't forward deploy new guys, but, but I went right to first battalion and I spent four years there and we did a lot of ops and a lot of missions. And I had a lot of experience and a really solid background and was a special forces guy. I was ranger guy, sniper, you know, all those things I had some really good skill sets and then showed up at uh, second battalion, 10 special forces group in Fort Carson and in the fall of 02, and that's the lead up to, to Iraq. So I felt like, you know, man, I had some really good experience. I'd been around, I'd, I'd been on some, some great deployments and um, had, had a lot of good experience and I was ready to jump into this Iraq thing. So, um, so I was assigned to a detachment and uh, by this time I was a E7 and had four years. So I was one of the more senior guys, you know, not the senior guy, but one of the more senior guys. And, uh, so we're getting ready to go to Iraq. And uh, I, I remember this. I think it's kind of funny. Um, the intelligence that we were getting for Iraq, uh, that the Iraqis were going to capitulate, which I didn't even know what that meant. Like, I had to ask someone, like, hey, what are they talking about? Like, when they say <laughs> capitulate, what does that mean? It's like, oh, they're going to surrender and their turrets are going to be faced away. And uh, all the all the soldiers won't have AKs. You know, only the officer will have a pistol or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, so these dudes aren't going to fight like this. This will be awesome. This is great. But anyway, uh, we end up forward deploying to Romania, I think, in February of 03. You know, the war started in March of 03. And uh, so we're forward deployed in Romania. We're right on the Black Sea. And we're right in, like, this hotel. Of course, they don't have anybody there. So it's cold as heck. And, uh, and they didn't want us outside of the hotel because they didn't want the press you know, taking pictures and seeing ODAs running around training and weapons and all kinds of crazy stuff. So we were basically, you know, stuck in this hotel, this resort level hotel, which had no heat and barely had D 
decent food. Um, and, and we're thinking all these things like, Hey, what's going to happen? Cause you know, we're going to be part of the North, the Northern Iraq part, you know, because the strategy behind all that was there's like, I can't remember how many exact divisions, uh, Iraqi divisions, but there's like 10 to 16 divisions, Iraqi divisions that were up North arrayed against the Kurds to kind of keep them in check. And I think the thought was, Hey, we need to have some people up there, some American, you know, American presence to keep these divisions engaged so they don't all go south and reinforce Baghdad because that was kind of like the main effort was, you know, all the all the troops coming into Baghdad and taking Baghdad as center gravity. It's like we got to keep these divisions up north engaged so they don't do that. You know, that was part that was a big part of the, the strategy. So uh, so we were in Romania and we were going to go to Turkey and then we were gone to uh, infill into northern Iraq with these like Toyota Hiluxes. And we were going to link up with our brothers from the Kurdish Peshmerga, and we were going to kind of inspire some confidence in the in the in the leadership, the Kurdish leadership, because we'd kind of left them high and dry. Not kind of, but we had, we left them high and dry. So it was really like a commitment for them to see, like, hey, the Americans are really going to do this thing. They're here in force. Uh, they got special forces guys here on the ground. Of course, your agency brothers were already there working with some of our guys, the forward deployed guys setting up everything um and that was all great until turkey decided uh on march 1st of 2003 to say hey uh you're not going to use our land to infill into northern iraq you're not going to use our airspace to infill into northern iraq so they basically told us to pound sand uh, and and that was the plan i mean that's where all of our equipment was that's where our vehicles were i mean that's where that's where everything was. So, so that really sucked. Um, and then we were just trying to figure out a way how, how we were going to get in country, how we were going to get into Northern Iraq. Um, so, so they came up with a plan that, that we were going to use uh, MC one thirties and we were going to fly in and it was like, okay, that's cool. And I mean, man, we got on, and off of MC-130 so, so much, but something happened, you know, hey, we can't do it for whatever reason. And and I think the State Department behind the scenes was really working hard trying to get I'm Turkey. Sure. I'm yeah. Sure. And were you guys jumping in, Daryl? Was the plan to jump? No, no, no. no okay. We weren't. Yeah, we weren't jumping in. Um, so, so I think they kept working it. And finally, they were just like, no, it's not going to happen. So they changed kind of plans at the last second. And we we left Romania because Turkey refused to, to cooperate and we flew to Jordan and we set up in Jordan and we were just there for a little bit. So the plan was, was like, Hey, we're going to insert, uh, I was part of second battalion and we were on the first three MC one thirties. Uh, the last three MC one thirties was third battalion. So we were going into uh, North of Erbil and Basher army airfield or Basher airfield, whatever the name of that was, which is ultimately where the 173rd jumped into, mm. um, which I listened to your Bill Oslin podcast. That was amazing, man. That was a yeah. great podcast. Uh, and then third battalion was going to fly uh, South and they were going into Salmonia. So that was kind of how we set everything up. 
So they finally decide to fly in. I think it might have been the 20th of March. This is when Operation Ugly Baby uh, kicked off. So we were going to fly along the western part of Iraq and then kind of cross over the northern part and then come into Erbil. Our birds would land um, and then 3rd Battalion would continue to fly down south of Salmania. So it sounded like a pretty cool deal. Uh, the problem was they hadn't taken out all of the AAA, the anti-aircraft artillery sites yet. So, uh, so we start this flight, six birds, six MC-130s, and I believe it was about 590 miles, uh, you know, 600 miles is what we were going to fly in. So we were going to have to fly in over all of this, you know, western part of Iraq and then the northern part that hadn't been softened up a whole lot. And uh, because of that, um, we were flying Napa the Earth, which is, you know, bellies on the, on the desert floor there. I think anywhere from like two to 500 feet, which is just ridiculous uh, flying in that, that low. Um, so that's what we did, man. We, we started off and, and I'm not, like, I'm one of those guys, I don't like, I don't like heights, you know, I don't like being crazy in airplanes and all that stuff. I don't like roller coaster rides. So, so I was definitely really miserable during this time period. I was miserable. I think the flight was a few hours, uh, four hours, something, five hours. I don't know, but, uh, it started out pretty cool. Like everything was fine. There was nothing going on. And then all hell broke loose and the planes just started doing this and up and down in crazy different ways. And, and, and when you think of like, oh, I was in the back of the airplane, like not in like a seat, you know, it's like you're setting your butt on your gear or your, you know, snap linked into the, you know, to the floor. So you can't like get thrown around like a rag doll. And there was guys puking. And um, I remember they had like these um, kind of like these curtains or blackout drapes whatever you want to call them over the windows so i mean it's completely dark people are puking you're doing this and it's just and you don't really know what's going on uh, you could hear things you could hear explosions and stuff and i remember uh one of the guys he pulled that drape over and he looked and then he closed it back real quick and uh everybody's like hey what did you see out there what did you see out there and then the word you know is kind of like People are asking what he saw. Well, what did he see? It's like, he said it looked like the 4th of July out there. And we we're like, oh my gosh. So there were six, six MC-130s. We're in the second one. And uh, I always remember uh, Colonel Cleveland, uh, Charlie Cleveland, he was our group commander. He, he, was, on our, he was on our plane. So that was kind of cool. But, but we were the second bird. And I think looking back, we kind of got over because, you know, we had the first bird, the second bird, but the third through six, I mean, we got lit up. I mean, all the, all the birds got lit up, but, but I think really the people that got lit up were the people behind us. Uh, so we, we did that man for several hours. And then uh, the third MC 130 was, uh, was Harley three, four. That was their call sign. And uh, we all got shot up really bad thank God, you know, nobody, nobody was wounded or killed, but Harley three, four, which was the third bird, the bird right behind us, they got shot up so bad. They couldn't land in our bill. They had to do like an emergency landing. They had to tell Turkey like, Hey man, 
I know you don't want us, but we got to land this thing or we're going to crash and kill everybody. And they gave them special permission to come in and, and they were shot up so bad. And I think the pilot's windshield was, was knocked out and they were, he could only fly off, you know, he was flying the thing and, you know, he couldn't use some of his instruments, but, uh, but I remember for us, when we came in to Basher, you know, we kind of had like a plan, you know, like, Hey, you know, the birds are going to land, the ramp's going to go down and guys are going to come off. And we're going to have like a perimeter there and we're going to go back and get the gear. Dude, when we landed in Basher, I was so happy to actually land. I was just so happy. I just wanted to run off and just be on the ground. But, uh, all of that planning stuff went out the window. We had the crew chief there. It was like, get off the bird, get off the bird. And he was doing his, uh, he was looking at the plane and doing all of his, you know, crew chief checks and all that type of stuff. And uh, we had fuel gushing out of the, the wings. And I think one of our engines was out um, and they just wanted us off. They wanted us away. They wanted our gear off there. And then they wanted to get out of there. And, uh, and that's what happened, man. We, we got all of our stuff out of there and then they took off and I was so happy to be done with that flight, man. I was so happy. That was a terrible, terrible flight. I've got some pictures from that, just doing research of guys in the aircraft, just like you said, laying out, no seats. It's not like when I went over to Afghanistan in 08 or 07, like buckled in, you're uncomfortable. Yeah. No, this is like, you guys are laying on the floor, huddled up all your gears there. And then pictures, and I'll show them here for those who are just listening to this, if you want to see on YouTube. Um, we've got pictures that we'll show here as well with the bullet holes and like windshields just blown out of these aircraft. It's no joke. Yeah. Are you going to show the pictures now or? No, no, I'm going to put them on okay. afterwards here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool, man. Another thing I remember too, I think is kind of interesting. I saw the thought process go through a couple guys' mind because we were wearing uh, old school, like Ranger body armor. And, you know, we're flying over and we're getting lit up and we're getting shot pretty good. And I, I saw the thought process for guys, you know, I kind of like, they're kind of scheming, like, like I got my Ranger body armor on my chest and I'm setting down. Should I take it off and set on it? So it kind of protects my legs and my groin, or should I leave it on and protect my chest and my vital organs? And it was kind of like, Oh, whatever. I mean, if it, if it happens, it's, it's probably not going to do you any good. So, uh, but you could kind of see those gears turning on like, guys. Like you want to do something. Yeah. 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 You're just, I mean, you're, you're, you can't control. I mean, I will like to say this though. I, I would, man, I have to say this, our uh, air force brothers that flew us in and, and probably sisters too, brothers and sisters, yep. man, big time, big time. I mean, to keep those planes from crashing, I think, uh, I think there's a picture. I saw it somewhere. Like someone actually like painted a picture from operation ugly baby, and the, the MC-130 is flying over like a convoy of like Iraqi vehicles that stops and everybody's just like, oh my gosh, look at these big slow planes. And they're just lighting everybody up. <laughs> uh, I actually told my wife the other day, I was like, I might want to get one of those pictures. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, man, just the pilots uh, to keep from crashing and to get us there in one piece, like mad respect, mad respect. I, I think people don't realize at that time, I think we just think like, oh, the U.S. is going in. We got all this technology, air superiority. We can do whatever we want. You're talking six 
large, very slow aircraft flying two to 500 feet off the ground, which that in itself is pretty hair, hairy. Yes. But, but also flying through areas that have AAA, you know, like they could take you out. We hadn't gone in and softened them up, as you said. So yeah. like, I think having that perspective is important because it's not the, the feeling we had like 10 years later where we had total um, oh, yeah. control over a lot of these things. Okay. That's awesome. All right. Uh, so Daryl, if we jump now from a terribly named op to one that's <laughs> a little bit better and we fast forward to 2006, um, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in more detail, but you're part of an ODA that wins the Larry Thorne award for effectively the best ODA um, for that year. And it has to yep. do with this rotation you're on in 2006 to Iraq. Um, and we want to talk a little bit about Operation Thor's Hammer, which effectively sets the groundwork for this as you described it. But just before we jump in, you had shared some of the background for this rotation uh, and for, for what you guys earned the Larry Thorne Award. But over this tour, you guys detained like 192 Shia extremists, 233 AQI, 18 brigade commanders, 13 regional emirs, and 20 no-kidding HVTs. So it's no small feat. And I just wanted to set the context as we jump into this with Thor's hammer, if you can explain um, what went on in this op. Well, yeah, I do want to say, though, some of those stats were from 2007, uh, where we kind of had the reach all throughout Iraq. And we had a great rotation then. Uh, but 2006 was more focused on Atomia. Got it. Uh, just, just want to clear that up. So Thor's hammer, uh, Thor's hammer was a really interesting op for us. So, just to give you some context of, of what we're dealing with, this is this is 2006. Um, I had I had taken uh, I had taken over a detachment in the fall of 2005. So I was the senior enlisted advisor uh, member of Operational Detachment Alpha 043 ODA 043. I was a team sergeant and uh, had a bunch of young, young dudes on my, my team, a few x-rays, 18 x-rays, guys that just came in off the street and went through the special forces pipeline. So I say all that to say I had a, I had a hungry team. I had an aggressive team. You know, I was for 2006, I was on my third rotation and a lot of these guys, they were on their first rotation. So, and we were going to Baghdad. And during this, this time period, I think 2006 was probably one of the most violent years. Yeah. Uh, Baghdad was like the ground center, you know, for, uh, for violence. It was, it was a very violent uh, time period in Iraq, uh, 06 and 07, actually. But so we were going to Adamia and uh, Adamia was a Sunni stronghold. Uh, they had one of the biggest uh, Sunni mosques there, Abu Hanifa Mosque. And uh, we weren't on a large forward operating base. Uh, we were at a place called like Camp Apache. And it was a few, uh, we were Northeast uh, Baghdad. We were right on the Tigris and uh, we were co-located. We had our, our brothers from the 101st that were there. I mean, we were totally separate in our compound. We had some of the guys from the 101st that were right there. And then they were with the Iraqi army that was in uh, one of Saddam's uh, son's palaces. So they kind of had their own little deal. But but Adamia in 06, uh, you know, it, it was a violent place. And uh, when we had just came in, we had relieved our, our brothers from the fifth group special forces team. And uh, 
they passed over a, a target package to us. And they said, hey, I'll just say the first, first part here. It was like, hey, this guy, Dia, he's a bad dude. He's killed a bunch of Americans. He's, you know, IED guy and all this. Um, so it caught, our, it caught our attention. It was like one of the main guys that they wanted, like their whole rotation. And they never caught him. So they passed him over to us. And uh, so we were like, all right, let's, let's see if we can find this Dia guy. And during this time period, you know, national level assets had, had a lot of support. They had a lot of assets, you know, uh, we could get phone numbers all day from talking to people, but we really couldn't do much with them, you know, because we, we didn't have like the signals and in, intelligence triggers to, to really, you know, to go after people kind of on that, uh, that was more of a national level asset thing. So, but we could get numbers all day long. We just couldn't do anything with them, uh, but pass them up. So for this guy, Dia, we had his, we had his phone number, uh, and we would get human intelligence like, Hey, he's over here. He's over here, but you know, he, he was a hard guy to get a hold of, uh, to capture or kill. And, and actually when we were looking at that target set, uh, a lot of times you kind of get a feel like, Hey, we're going to get on target. We're probably gonna have to kill this guy because of, you know, his background. Um, and some guys like, Hey, you know, we'll probably capture him. He's more of a financer. He's not a fighter. So he'll probably be a capture. You know, you kind of have these like little inklings before you go on target. Like, yeah, we're probably gonna have to kill this guy or probably cap capture this guy. Dia was a guy we thought like, okay, this dude's going to fight. We're gonna have to kill him. Um, we had his number, we had his general location, but we just couldn't really do much with it. And then you got a bunch of guys, type a guys that have a lot of time on their hands. And we were kind of sitting around like, how could we capture this guy? Like, what could we do to, to get our hands on him? So we developed kind of like a, a honeypot type deal. And it was like, well, what would happen since we know his number, if we had a female that called him by accident and like before he could even say anything, she's saying something along the lines of like a damsel in distress, like my boyfriend or husband just left and I've been waiting for you. Please come over, you know, whatever, like really get something going damsel in distress. And there's like a really need for her you know, to see him, but it's not the right guy. You know, it's kind of like the wrong number and I'll be darned. That's what we did. Uh, we had, uh, through our contacts, we had someone, a female that called him wrong number and kind of did the whole damsel in distress. And it got his attention just a little bit. And, and it was like, Hey, this is a, you know, this is a guy, he's a tough guy. He's, you know, killing American soldiers and all that. So we thought it might be appealing and, and sure enough, it, it caught his attention. And I think that initial engagement, you know, it, they got off the phone. It didn't last very long, but he ended up calling her back and then she ended up calling him and it kind of developed this little thing. You know how this thing oh, goes, man. right? I'm you know this. how this, my thing agency goes. days are just like coming back to me here. I love it. You know how this thing goes. Uh, so yeah, so they started kind of this little phone relationship back and forth, and she continued to be the damsel in distress and how she had this need 
for to see him and to be with him and for him to take care of her because her needs weren't being met and all of these different types of things. And uh, so, um, so finally it gets to a point where it's like, I want to meet you. Like I have to see you. I want to be with you. And we had the whole thing set up and uh, you know, we were in Atomia, it was SUNY stronghold and this was taking place like right outside Sodder City, which, you know, just two rough, rough areas uh, in Iraq. I mean, just really rough, violent areas, right? And uh, our female was going to be at like this, uh, what was it? It was kind of like a, a clothing type store, you know, in right outside Sodder City in Baghdad there. And uh, that's where she was going to be. And then we were trying to get him to go in there because we had people, we had people there waiting. We had a bread truck. We had guys set up uh, sniper rifles um, with our Iraqi uh, army counterparts. We had a QRF that was, that was in vicinity. And then I was driving in a, uh, in a civilian vehicle, Iraqi looking vehicle. And I had, uh, Ryan Lynn was my driver, another team guy, SF guy that was on my detachment. And we had some Terps in the back and they were kind of working all the phones, you know, relaying messages from a female to this dude and all that. And we were kind of just, just listening in. And this conversation just continued on. He wasn't in the store. He was like smart enough to know, like, I'm not going to go in the store but he was intrigued enough to be close, but we just couldn't pinpoint where he was. And she was like, why don't you come in the store? You know, I want to see you, you're, you know, whatever, whatever. And he just wasn't falling for that. And it took us several, you know, we were driving basically laps out there. And, uh, and finally uh, I asked one time, Cause you know, I, I don't understand. I don't, I can't understand what they're talking about. I don't speak Arabic. Um, I asked one time, I said, Hey, what, what the heck are they talking about right now? And he said, Hey, he, he basically said, Hey, are you wearing the full, like the Islamic dress type, you know, the, the full thing. And she says, yes, I am, but I'm sexy underneath or something to that effect. <laughs> and it kind of like ramp things up, you know? And uh, I think he, it might've drawn him in a little bit closer. He was, he was actually parked outside and he was kind of like catty corner to the clothing store. He just wouldn't get close, but he was, you know, it was kind of like, man, he wanted to be in that store so bad. <laughs> so we finally were able to pinpoint where he was with a little bit of help. We were able to pinpoint where he was. And as soon as I had a good, like I had the visual, I knew it was him. Uh, we drove up, I called QRF to collapse the target. I said, Hey, I'm getting ready to go grab this dude. Um, got QRF rolling up. And as soon as I could see the vehicle like rolling up and I saw him turn, I took off from my vehicle and I was running as fast as I could. And uh, on foot, you're out on, on foot. Yeah. I'm out on foot at this time. We're still thinking probably going to have to kill this guy because he's, he's going to be armed, which he was, but, uh, fortunately for him, he didn't draw his pistol or anything, 
but he was focused on that Humvee that was coming right our way. He didn't see me. And uh, right when I got my hands on him to take him down to the ground and, you know, cause he wasn't, I couldn't, you know, shoot him. Um, the 240 gunner lights up something and that's total different story, but I just hear this 240 going off right when my hands are getting on him and I'm throwing him to the ground. And I don't even know what that's all about, but it's like, they're going to have to take care of that. Cause I got this dude, got him on the ground, flex cuffed him. Uh, one of the Terps comes up actually and helps me out. Cause I didn't know if he had a bunch of dudes with him, how that was all going to yeah. go down. Cause as soon as I put my hands on him and I had him down, that was where I was focused. And I had another SF guy that was supposed to collapse. He didn't end up being there. The 240 went off. And then I had a Terp that kind of jumped out of the vehicle at the last minute just to be there with me, which was cool. But but this guy Dia did not resist it at all. He didn't go for his pistol, which he had, um, which probably saved his life, I will say. Um, but we got him all taken care of. And, and that really started our rotation, man. I mean, we got a guy that fifth group was after the whole time. They weren't able to get him. And uh, because of all the things that he did, and he actually led us to a lot of follow on targets once we got him back okay. alive to the detention facility. He just knew so much information, man. He really started our rotation. Like it skyrocketed from there. Oh man. All right. A couple things before we jump from this one super creative. I think what you described with, um, Kosovo with that deten um, detainment of the Pifwick. And then this one really gives people an idea of how creative you can be in the ODAs. Right. And I don't know if you could do that on the conventional side, but you certainly are able to do it there. Just one question as you're setting up this op, why did you determine you as the team sergeant to be the one who's going to go in and put your hands on him first. Why not send one of your guys in to do it? Well, I like to be like the actions on guy, you know, like, uh, like my team leader, you know, obviously, you know, was captain, great deal of trust. You know, he was dealing with the Iraqis. I was more of an actions on objective execution operations guy. Like, uh, that's where it all went down. And I wanted to be that guy. I, I didn't want to put one of my younger dudes out there to do it. Um, I was comfortable with it. I was experienced. Um, I just didn't, I didn't want to put my, my younger dude in that role, but actually, I mean, we thought, we thought it was going to go a little different. You know, I wasn't supposed to be like the guy Good that point, was going to, because he could have gone into the shop, right? Into the he store. Was, yeah, he was supposed to go in. We had Iraqi set up. I mean, we had our Iraqi scout platoon that we worked with from time to time and and they were in different locations and but it, he just wouldn't go in and he didn't, you know, for like our sniper team that was set up in a bread truck. You know, they they were kind of blind to where he was because he didn't go where he was supposed to yeah. go. He was kind of out of the out of the picture there because we thought like this dude was going to be armed, he, you know, like we thought it was going to go down a certain way. And sure enough, you know, we kind of had to, to make that plan at the last minute and we just flexed and, and we had the ability to do it, man. It worked. God, I can only imagine how pumped the team must've been just planning that, like the, the honey, the honey pot op and getting them together. And I think it just shows some things are universal. Guys will do stupid things when it comes to women. And <laughs> if it's I'm, too good to be true, dude, man, it's probably too, be, too good. 
I am sure when you when he saw you running at him, he was probably like, I knew it. I knew it. something was wrong here. It's too good to be true. Yeah, I think uh, one of the pictures that you might have, Ryan, I'm in a green Iraqi like track top track suit type thing. That was from that op. And the and the guys actually gave me some grief. You know, it's like Green Lantern or whatever. It's like, oh my gosh, you see, <laughs> did you see D run across? He's looking like the Green Lantern or whatever. It's like, oh man, great. That's what makes it so good. Okay. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that kind of kicks off it jump starts effectively this pretty significant rotation that you all have when we were coordinating behind the scenes for this interview you mentioned something to me that i'd only heard one other time and you said yep we we need to talk about this one day 17 april it was my alive day i think you said which i I have heard but only one other person on my show has used can you share what does an alive day mean and then take us through 17 april please okay yeah great Great. Thanks for bringing it up. I just celebrated my I'm happy to be alive day just a couple of weeks ago. My happy to be alive day is 17 April 2006. Um, yeah, I'll get into the story so so everyone can can hear what it was all about. But it's just a day that you feel blessed to still be alive because it could have went a different way. You know, another inch here, half inch there. Um, I wouldn't have been here. So, so it's just a day that I reflect on and I normally send texts around. I talk to some of the guys and just like, man, so glad that we were out there together and, and we got through that because it, it could have went South. It could have went a different way. And, and we were just lucky. We were just blessed, you know, whatever. Uh, but it all worked out. So that's happy to be a live day. Um, and, you know, it's funny that there are a couple of people that, you know, I'll see it occasionally on LinkedIn. I'm not on any other social media. I don't even, I wouldn't even know what to do on some of these other media places, but, but I am on LinkedIn. So every now and then I'll see somebody post a picture or something. They're like, Hey man, it's, you know, whatever 17 March. And I'm just happy to be here, you know, uh, shout out to, to the guys they serve with. So, um, talking about Atomy at 2006, we were there, it was a violent place. Um, you know, there's all these things going on in Baghdad, Sunni, Shia, all that type of stuff. And uh, 22 February 2006 happens. And it actually ignites a civil war in Iraq. They didn't call it a civil war. They had other names for it. But 22 February 2006, uh, one of the largest Shia shrines in Samarra, uh, Iraq, was bombed and destroyed. And it no kidding ignited a civil war um you know shias were killing sunnis sunnis were retaliating killing shias everyone was killing one another and and we were kind of like in the middle of this whole mess so what that meant for us was you know adamia kind of locked itself down even more because they were you know one of the few you know baghdad's got like i think nine districts you know adamia was one and uh and they were trying to protect themselves and Shias were wanting to come in and kill, kill Sunnis. And, you know, some of the folks from Adamia were going out and killing Shia. So this whole thing, this kicks off. So there's a civil war. They were calling it like extrajudicial killing. You know, people were being found bound hands behind their back, shot in the head, dumped in the streets, left dumped in the Tigris. So this whole thing is like boiling over and we're right there. 
And I mentioned earlier, our brothers from the 101st were right there. They had a really difficult, tough job because they were with the Iraqi army. So, you know, they weren't unilateral. Like if they were going to do anything, they were, they had to kind of buy with through the Iraqi army. They were training them and, and getting them confident to fight and all that type of stuff. So, so for us, you know, we were in Atomia for uh, intelligence collection and we were trying to find fix, you know, guys like Dia. Um, but it's really hard to do that. You know, it, it's, that's a hard mission to do. And we kind of had the mindset during this time frame, just to give a little bit of background on 17 April, 2006, we had the mindset. It's like, Hey man, we're spending so much time and we're trying to talk to people and develop all of these things. It's so time intensive to find and fix folks. And it's like, Hey, if the 101st is out there and they're in a big fight, like that's where they're at. That's where the bad guys are. So we can go out there, find them, fix them and finish them. Uh, so we, we relished that opportunity. And, and actually to back up even more, when we first got there, one of our first meetings with the 101st guys, love those guys. They, I mean, they were out there fighting. And uh, one of the earlier conversations, they said, hey, if we need help, will you guys come help us? Because, you know, we shared a compound and, you know, Atomia was like right across the street. Like we're looking at Atomia every day and like their QRF and their higher headquarters was, was a good ways away. And it's like, hey, if we need help quick, can we call on you guys? Because we know you're doing your little secret mission or whatever. Will, will you help <laughs> us? And, and I remember saying something along the lines of, hey, man, we'll help you. We'll always come and help you. But, but don't call us if it's like a suspicious vehicle or you think you have a id or something like that like if you call us we're gonna bring it and we're gonna burn stuff down like don't call us if you need a scalpel because we're gonna be like a sledgehammer and we're going for knockout punches and uh, i didn't know how well received that was going to be that comment but they loved it they were like yes <laughs> awesome like that's all we wanted to hear and and it was the same for them too like hey if we're out doing something they said, Hey man, call us. We'll help you. Yeah. So, so 17 April, it starts out like most days in Atomia. We wake up, it's going to be an administrative day for us, which is kind of weird in combat, but we were going to get some turret upgrades and things like that. And, uh, we wake up to all hell breaking loose in Atomia, you know, firefight explosions, just another typical day in Atomia. And we reach out to our brothers from the 101st and say, Hey man, we know you guys are in something pretty good out there you need some help? And they were like, no, I think, I think we're good. I think we're good. It's like, okay, cool. So we ended up leaving the compound and we went back to the green zone, checked in with our higher headquarters, getting ready to get on route Irish and go into Baghdad international airport and, and get some work done. And, Oh, we were dropping off our interpreter too. Our interpreter was getting ready to take some leave. So we had two gun trucks, which is how we, which was crazy in itself. You know, when people saw us leave, you know, rolling around in two gun trucks, it was like unheard of. It's like, these guys are crazy. Cause like, it's too small of a, a contingent to be cruising around in. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Most, I mean, most convoys are like six vehicles or whatever. So, so we're in two gun trucks, six green berets, which we didn't even have a full, you know, full vehicle here, you know? Uh, we had six green berets, which we were really light. You know, we had a driver, a gunner and a TC. And then for my vehicle, I had Jojo, who was our interpreter. He was sitting behind me. So six green berets, one interpreter, two gun trucks. 
And uh, right before we hit route Irish to go to Baghdad international airport, my phones, my phone, like we had these embassy phones that they had given us and my phone's ringing off the hook in my pocket sleeve. So uh, we stopped the vehicles and, and I'm taking the call and it's Chris Denham. Who's my team leader. Awesome dude. Uh, still serving. Thanks Chris for still serving. But uh, he's like, Hey man, uh, our 101st guys are calling. They want, they want you guys. They need you guys in Adamia. It's like, are you sure? Cause we just checked in with them. It's like, man, something happened. Like, you know, whatever, whatever. There's still been fighting this whole time. It's like, okay. So I think by this time they'd been in a five hour, five hour uh, troops in contact, five hour engagement, not the typical engagement for Adamia during this time. Cause we got a lot of harass harassment fire type stuff. So this, we knew this was something different. Uh, so I, I get the guys together and I say, Hey man, our 101st guys, they need us. Are you guys down? And I just felt like as a team sergeant, I needed a little buy-in because you're asking guys to put their lives on the line. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have to. Yeah, that, that's not what you guys were there for, right? We weren't there for no. that. We, we didn't have to do it. We could have said, hey, man, we're already in the green zone. We're, we got to get these turrets or whatever. Like, we could have just like, no. But everybody was like, to a man, yes, let's go help them. So we left the green zone. We headed back to Adamia. We almost flipped our lead truck. Um, which, you know, we would have, we would have probably, you know, we'd have had casualties. We would have definitely killed the gunner. Um, we, we would have had some serious casualties, but luckily our driver was able to keep it. A trail vehicle said that, uh, that we were on two wheels, you know, cause what I was happened? In the, like, did you guys hit, hit something? So, so I'm, I'm TC and I got a younger driver, uh, and I'm trying to like, Hey, go, 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 go. And then I saw the exit ramp that I wanted him to go up oh, the exit no. ramp to save time but in his mind it was like well that's the exit ramp i can't take the exit ramp i'm going to go this way but i wanted to save time and i was like trying to direct him and he didn't catch it till the last second so he like kind of oh. overcorrected luckily he had been we'd been to a really extensive driver's course and i i credit that with him being able to keep control of that vehicle because you know i think a great lesson from that is like you can't help anyone if you don't arrive alive yeah. like 100%. Whether you're first responder, helicopter pilot, yep. military, QRF, whatever, like you can't help anyone if you don't get there alive in one piece. So, so we get through that. We have, we don't have a lot of information on the situation. We just know all hell's breaking loose. And, and we drive up uh, in Atomia to Antar Square. That's where we were told to, to link up with. So we get there and I had like, I was looking out the side window of the Humvee and it's kind of like things are going slow motion and, you know, we got the, we're under fire and all that type of stuff. There's explosions. And I got this little window that's like, I feel like it's in slow motion. I'm looking out the side window and I see these Iraqis and they're looking back at us and it's nothing but fear and terror in their eyes. They're just like, Oh my, you know, they're so scared of, you know, cause they've been engaged for like five hours and and the enemy had actually been maneuvering on them which you know typically in Adami, it was a lot of harassment they'd fire and then they kind of run away melt away but this is daylight uh, there's like a big storm that had been brewing so you know we had no air support and i think that really contributed to what we were getting ready to deal with because they knew you know the u.s army doesn't fight fair well none of, none of the branches fight fights fair 
So we love to have our brothers, people like you up there working the Apaches and all that. But uh, it was it was a bad day for, uh, you know, the ceiling was crazy. And and uh, I think they knew that we didn't have any air support. But anyway, I'm looking at these Iraqis and and I saw their face go from fear to terror to like surprise. This is the friendlies. This is friendlies. Yeah. The Iraqi army. And it was surprised because they seen us because we'd helped the 101st before primarily at night, we'd go out there and we'd burn it down and then, all right, we're good. But they were seeing us kind of like in the daytime and we looked different. We didn't look like the 101st guys. Our vehicles didn't look the same. Like we had steel I beams as our front bumper. It was like a flipping vehicle can opener. I mean, we rolled different. Uh, we looked different. We had beards, you know? So these guys, fear terror to like oh my gosh these dudes are crazy what are they gonna do now and just keep in mind we're only two vehicles i know they're probably like where's the rest of you (laughs) yeah right so uh so i kind of pull the vehicles off so we're not like in the line of fire and i get out i'm gonna link up with my iraqi army counterpart and i kept thinking to myself during this time it's like hey 10 feet tall bulletproof 10 feet tall bulletproof Cause I wanted to give these guys confidence and I wanted to reassure them like, Hey, we're here. We're going to fight with you guys. Like we're going to do this thing. We're with you. Uh, Cause I feel like uh, the perception during this time, you know, for the Iraqi army, it was, it was kind of like the Americans think we're like cannon fodder and they're just trying to throw us in and they don't care if we get wounded or killed. But, but I, I kind of wanted them to know like a little bit of, of inspiration and, and courage and bravery and those type of things. 10 feet tall, bulletproof, walked over there calmly, calm breeds calm, right? And I walked over there with my Terp and I, I checked in with the Iraqi commander. I can't remember if he was a captain, lieutenant, whatever. Checked in with him, did like, you know, men, weapons, equipment. How's everybody? Does everyone have their equipment? Is everybody good? Uh, I asked him if he had any uh, KIAs, some killed in action. He didn't have any KIAs. I saw that he had some wounded there. He had some uh, guys that had been shot up. He had a couple guys that had shrapnel wounds. So they and they were there with him. Um, so I said, "Hey, man, if you got a spare vehicle, you might want to get these guys loaded up, get them out of here, get them back to the rear. And then if I were you, I would go around, check your guys, redistribute ammo, check their position, make sure they're behind cover, let everyone know that the wounded have been taken out, and they're all." They're good. They're going to be taken care of. And we're getting ready to get into a nice little fight here because we got some guys that are that are willing to that are willing to do this. So I left him linked up with uh, with the 101st guys. We kind of like went behind this area so we couldn't really be seen linked up with the 101st got the same situation from them. It's like, hey, this isn't the typical engagement. This isn't like neighborhood watch guys that do some harassment fire and run like these dudes are fighting. They are maneuvering. They want to fight. And we were like, awesome. Like that was the best news ever. So I just wanted to confirm with him, like, Hey, I remember sticking out my, like my right arm and my left arm. And I was like, all right, so there's no more friendlies in front of us, like to my right and all the way to my left. Like, this is all bad guys. And he's like, yes, there's no Iraqi army. There's no Iraqi police. There's no hundred first. It's all bad guys. And it was like, okay, this is like the greatest thing ever. And uh, they were, they were trying to get situated right after we pulled up. uh, They actually had another, uh, a QRF element finally uh, rolled in like four vehicles, I think from, from their element. 
So what we were going to do was kind of, you know, we had like a north-south road and then we had these east-west uh, roads that were kind of running off of it. We were going to go up and down this north-south road, work in those side streets where all the, the enemy were. And I was able to tell my team, my gunners, it was like, hey, if it's a threat in this area right here, kill it. And it was like, all right, let's do it. And we're just going to maneuver. And we kind of had our two vehicles. Uh, I, I had the 240 on my vehicle. And then uh, the trail vehicle was a 50 cal. And we had thousands of rounds, man. We had lots of lots of rounds to, to do damage. And, and we started maneuvering. And it was kind of like we had like little mobile support by fire positions, you know. And we were kind of doing bounding overwatch. Well, we kind of hit the first couple of side streets. And I don't think they really knew what was going on. They were like, you know, because it was kind of stationary there for a little bit. And the enemy from Adamia decided to kind of do a welcome party. Like, hey, we're going to, we're here. We're going to welcome you guys to the fight. So they kind of, we kind of hit one of these side streets. Then they roll up and there's like four or five dudes that jump out of a vehicle. This guy with an RPG. We didn't want to eat the RPG because that would have been catastrophic. But they pull up, they're like 50 to 75 meters from us. And our 50 cal gunner, which is a devastating weapon, just to even be around a 50 cal to hear it, it's like, ooh, you know, our 50 cal opens up on these dudes at like 50 to 75 meters. He's surgical with the 50 cal because he's had a lot of experience and he just eats these guys up. And I think that really changed the whole momentum of the day for us, that it was so devastating, so violent. And, and the way that we uh, we rolled that entire rotation. It was like, you know, speed, surprise, violence, overwhelming firepower. That's, that was our rotation. That's what we did. That's how we fought speed, surprise, violent, overwhelming firepower. And we just continued to do that. And then we came back down, we linked up with 101st. Uh, they had their additional assets there and we ended up getting online on this North South road. And we just started pushing everyone back, oh, yeah. back toward, uh, the Tigris. And, the enemy uh, weren't, they weren't dumb. They had like these kill zones set up uh, where they had the roads blocked off at s some of these intersections. So, so they had like uh, wire and barrels and tires and trap. I mean, they had all of this stuff like blocking the road. So you kind of had to figure out how you were going to maneuver. Cause if you, if you drove right up on it, and then you're kind of like in these kill zones at these angles and they could just eat you up. So, and we couldn't just drive through it because our vehicles would get all messed up, right? So we kind of had to stop short of these kill zones. And then I ended up getting out of the vehicle to clear this, these obstacles. And then, you know, when I did that, I'm, I'm not in a, in a vehicle anymore. I'm exposed and I was getting lit up while I was out there, it was crazy. And sometimes I would get twisted and tangled in all this stuff. And, and my interpreter, um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for all the guys, hundred first guys, special forces guys, you know, my team guys, my interpreter, you know, my interpreter was helping me out some of those times and, and clearing stuff up. But as soon as we could get it clear and we get those, those gun trucks up there, then we could really do some damage. So we had to do that a couple of times. I had to clear uh, a few of those kill zones. We got to a certain point. We were, we were continuing to move forward and we were just doing a lot of damage because just the amount of people that were out on the, on the streets that wanted to welcome us to Adamia. I mean, it, we were doing a lot of damage. 
we got to a certain point I was outside the vehicle and I was trying to fight from the engine block, um, you know, because you actually had some cover and there's like these four or five dudes up on the rooftop that are firing down at us. And my 50 cal gunner, I, I end up being with the 50 cal gunner because our trucks kind of like rotated our 50 cal gunners firing a different way. And these dudes are up on the rooftop firing down at us. So I'm engaged in these guys and we're, we're going back and forth. I have, you know, M4, so it's not like a 240 or a 50 cal. So I'm trying to engage these guys. So I'm trying to get my 50 cal gunner's attention so he could kind of shift over and help me out. And, and I think that was another point when I really realized like, Hey, this isn't the normal engagement. Like we'd already seen the guys that maneuvered and, and, you know, they had to eat a 50 cal like the RPG dudes and all that. So we saw that they maneuvered. We knew that they were fighting, but then these dudes on the rooftop, despite getting hit, like they continued to fight, which I didn't appreciate at the time, but you know, unless they were getting like that dead set, like torso headshot type thing, like they continued to fight. And it was just like, wow, man. But we kept going. Finally, my 50 cal, I see him kind of like look over and he notices I'm marking targets and then he just shifts that 50 cal over and it basically just destroys that whole top of that, that building where those guys were. So that was awesome. Wait, Daryl, can I ask you the marking targets? Cause that came up in the award citation. I don't think people are familiar with how you would mark a target with an M4 for somebody with a 50 cal. What does that entail? Yeah. So, um, you really did do your research, Ryan. It's impressive. Uh, so like for this instance, you know, like my 50 cal wasn't, he didn't know where I was or what I was doing, but I would always try to mark those targets like where I'm firing. He can see me like, hey, this is where I'm engaging, where my barrel is, where my rounds are going, where my rounds are impacting. And, you know, if I'm shifting over here, I'm shifting different areas. It's just a, a way to let him know to this line is up where with a you. threat line up with me, right. kill these guys. Yep. Um, so we kept fighting through that. We got to a certain point where we were in another kill zone uh, area and our trail vehicle, it's back to the trail vehicle, 50 cal. And the driver is Russ Hyatt. Great dude. Been, been under fire a bunch during this day as well. Just like everyone else, all of us. Russ calls on the radio and says, Hey man, you guys are leaking fluids. Crazy, like crazy. Um, and as soon as he said that, and I was, I couldn't even, I couldn't even, you know, like, Hey, Micah, you know, we're, we're leaking fluids. He lost everything. The vehicle was dead. It, it was shot. It was shot up so bad. Uh, it just killed our engine. So, um, so luckily, you know, our, our trail vehicle, we had the tow straps where we could, you know, hook up and tow each other. Cause we're right in the middle of this kill zone, man. We're just getting lit up. And we get towed out of there and I call back to the rear, you know, to, to Apache. And I just say, Hey man, our vehicle just got shot up. It's dead. We're, we're getting towed back. Get me another vehicle ready. Get me like double ammo of what we typically carry. And we carried a ton of ammo just to start with. But by this point, I think maybe we were an hour, hour and a half into this firefight by then. I mean, just slinging. That's a long time. It really is. Especially it's so close. It wasn't like a, Hey, they're like 600 meters away. I could barely, I mean, we could see these dudes. Like I could see these dudes taking hits and still fighting. Right. Um, double our ammo. We're coming back, get us ready. And we got towed back to Apache. We started switching over gear. We got into the new vehicle. There was a little bit of 
tension back and forth because the guys on the team, like, Hey man, you've been gunning this whole time. Like you're, you're the engineer guy. Like I'm the weapons guy. And it's like, not today, bitch. I'm gunning. <laughs> like I'm going back out with D. So, uh, so the guys were kind of, you know, they're, that's just, they were hungry, man. They wanted to fight, but we went back out with our same package because everything had been working. Daryl, did you guys consider like, it, was there any point where you're like, it's not worth us going back out there? It sounds no. like not, but. Absolutely not. No, like yeah. we, we left our guys, like it was like our brothers from the 101st are out there slinging. We told them that we were going to come back. We told them that we'd bring some ammo. Like there's no way we could have left yeah. those guys out there. So we, we rolled back, we linked up with them. Um, it's toward the end. Cause we were out there, I think all together two hours. So this is kind of toward the end. We pushed all the enemy back. Uh, and they ended up at Abu Hanifa mosque, which is one of the largest Sunni mosques in, uh, in Baghdad. And, you know, behind Abu Hanifa was like the Tigris. So there's really nowhere else for them to go. And we just all showed up Iraqi army, 101st, our detachment. And we we're just there right in front of Abu Hanifa, just waiting. Thank God they didn't do anything because I don't know what would have happened. What do you uh, mean they were you know, waiting? They were pinned down, basically? Well, they kind of melted back into Abu Got Hanifa. It. They were just like, all right, man, these dudes have been lighting <laughs> us up. Like, uh, I think they might have considered like, hey, I don't think the Americans are supposed to fire at the mosque while we're in it, you know, because that was a really, you know, sensitive thing. Uh, but I kind of feel like if they probably would have, it, it might have it might have went a little sideways, but luckily for them, maybe for us too, they, they had had enough. Uh, they didn't fight anymore. And we kind of was like, all right, cool. Um, you know, we talked with the hundred first a little bit. It was like, all right, man, if, if they're not fighting, we're out. So we, we rolled back, uh, before we rolled back though, um, the Iraqi police had, had lost some people in Adamia and, uh, so they had, they had some killed in action. They had, uh, they had left some of their vehicles out there. And so we thought it was kind of the right thing to do is to try to go secure some of that equipment that they had just left. Um, we didn't want it to fall in the enemy's hands. So, so we kind of maneuvered in a way to where we could jump into their vehicles and we drove them back, uh, to Apache. We did that. And then, um, probably within 30 minutes to an hour, we had, uh, we had actually a, a kind of a big planning thing that was going on in the green zone with our company headquarters. And we had a, a group from Taji, another group, first group that were there. So they, they knew that we were in a big firefight and, uh, and we had one of our guys that was part of this meeting. It's like, Hey, we'll take this dude back to Apache and see if they need any help. So I think we had three gun trucks, uh, from first group, they ended up showing up and they were like, Hey, you guys need any help? You know, and it's like, we talked with the 101st and was like, Hey, they're starting to spin up again. You know, it was like, now we got three SF trucks, two of our trucks. It was like, we got two ODAs. We went back out there, um, praying for someone to engage with us. But I think we might've got into a couple little skirmishes, but, uh, but nothing major. We, we returned back to base and, uh, that was pretty much 17 April, but it was a day that, that I always think of. I always remember, uh, I always reach out and, and just the violence of that day and how close everything was and the amount of rounds and, you know, you can't hear and, 
you know, all these things are going on. It was just a, I mean, definitely a significant day for me. And, you know, for the hundred first guys, I think it was seven hours for them. So just a crazy day, man. Crazy day. So, uh, I haven't asked somebody about this before, but just the way you're describing how long this took, you know, the, the only times I've been in combat was from a, an aircraft. So a very different perspective, but any of the training I'd done on the ground where you're really put through like an intense moment, you get this burst of adrenaline and you're moving and like, you're not pacing yourself. And, and I'm not trying to use it in the same terms of like a long distance run, but you, you're really short bursts of intense energy as you're moving from like cover to cover, um, bounding, covering someone else. Had you at that point in time, like by 2006, just learned to pace yourself through an engagement that could be hours long? Yeah, I mean, I'd never been part of, of an engagement that that long. So um, I think it was a new it was a new experience for me. Uh, you know, I, I knew I'd, I'd been around long enough to know, like, hey, I'm not just going to get out and and totally dump all my mags, the first engagement, like I knew I needed to, to pace several things, but I certainly didn't know that we were going to be out there just basically in a, in a fist fight for, for two hours. Broad like I, daylight. Yeah. Broad daylight. Like, you know, cause like I said earlier, the, the military, man, they don't fight fair. Like we bring every asset to bear and, and, um, and, and hearing some of the things afterwards, you know, of uh, some of the units that had rolled in, like some of the enemy, you know, that had kind of rolled into Atomia to reinforce, you know, I think initially maybe some of the, uh, like maybe the 101st, like their higher headquarters, maybe they thought like, oh, it's the neighborhood guys, you know, the neighborhood watch and they're kind of, you know, in a little firefight and give and take and all that. But uh, I think there was some hardcore enemy, like AQ, like yeah. Al Qaeda, in Iraq and uh, some of the other units that had kind of rolled in there and said, Hey, we're going to have to protect you guys. Cause I think for the most part, like Atomia was like a nationalist type of thing. Like, you know, like, Hey, we're sticking together and you know, the Americans shouldn't be here and you know, we're Iraqis and we should protect our place or whatever. But I think uh, over time they started getting other uh, groups in there that made it even more violent than, than what it was. Why do you think the 101st called you guys? Certainly there had to be other QRF out there. Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I really didn't know that answer until recently. You know, I, I reached out to to one of the guys from the 101st that I've stayed in, in contact with, Josh Brandon, and hopefully he doesn't get mad if I say his name. But uh, I didn't know the answer to that question. It was one of the first things I asked him. I said, hey, hey, Josh, I'm getting ready to do a podcast, and I'd love to get some feedback from you. I don't like to this day, I mean, this happened 17 April, 2006, like we're in 2022. Like, I don't know your all side of the story. I don't know what it was like, you know, what you guys saw and all that type of stuff. And, and, you know, started talking and I was like, Hey man, I have to know, like, why'd you call us? You know, like, and he's like, man, we called you guys. Cause we always knew that you would show up. You would, you would be there. And, and he said that he had called higher and, and asked for help, you know, continued to ask for help. And it was like, Hey, this is an Iraqi problem. Let them figure it out. Let them deal with it. They need to get on their own feet. They need to fight for their country. And it was like, he was trying to like, 
man, we need some help. This is significant. It's significant. But I think because there weren't American wounded in action, American killed in action, you know, there weren't any Iraqi killed in action for whatever reason to this yeah. day. I don't know how it didn't happen, but uh, I think the 101st hire, they just didn't really feel like, you know, it was that significant of a thing. Uh, and I still really think to this day, there's not really a lot of significance on, I mean, it was a seven hour firefight. That's bad. There was a, there was a lot of, I mean, I think the enemy killed in action was, you know, 15 to 25. I talked to Josh. We think it's way more than that because it's not like they just leave their dead out there, but, um, yeah, man, I, they, they finally convinced them kind of at the last minute, you know, they called us as kind of like a last ditch Hail Mary. Yeah, can like we get anything. We'll yeah. get the ODA guys. They'll, they'll come. And did, we did. Was, was there anything about it for you having been a Rakasan? Like you've been in the hundred first, you've lived in that base, you know, that place, like, was there any nostalgia there or affinity for that that came back? Of course, man. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at them like, you know, there's kind of like a little rivalry, you know, the special ops dudes and regular army guys and all that. But, but I think I did feel for them, you know, cause I used to be in the 101st, I was a rock Hassan and, and these guys, uh, you know, were artillery infantry guys or whatever, but, but I, you know, I was part of them and, and I didn't, you know, look down upon them. I looked at them as brothers. I knew that they were out there fighting every day, just, you know, so, yeah. And just since you would never say this, this is when you were awarded a bronze star with Valor, which is no uh, small feat either for what you did on that day. Um, and I was surprised as we were talking that, you know, this is such a memorable day for you, which makes sense, but it's not one of your worst moments. And so could you share, I was just surprised because I think for many people, this would have been one of your worst times. What comes to mind for you when you think of some of the hardest times? Yeah. So, so definitely out of me. I mean, it was just a, like I said, such a hard, violent and, and hopefully before we move on to something else, I, I would like to circle back with you and, and share some stories from the fall of 06 and 07 about yeah. Adamia, just so people get an understanding of what Adamia was really, really like and what it turned out to be. So I think my toughest day, uh, my toughest day in, in Atomia, we had, you know, because we lived in like these compounds, we had an Iraqi family that, that lived with us or, you know, they kind of lived in their own little place, but they, they did our cooking and cleaning and things like that. They supported us and, and we relied on them and they relied on us. And, uh, but one of the guys uh, that was really close with us was in Atomia and, and he got killed, you know, he got yeah, he got murdered. So I was actually out that day and I got the call. It seemed like everything happens when, when I was away, but, uh, it's like, Hey man, so-and-so just got killed. Um, you know, he's, he's gone, he's dead. And he's at the hospital in the morgue in Atomia. And this guy was a Shia. He's so he's at a Sunni place and, uh, they were trying to get the body back because of the Islamic traditions and, you know, all of those things, the body needs to be cleaned and buried 24 hours, whatever all that stuff is. So the, the folks at the hospital in the morgue were like, yeah, you guys come get him." you know, sure. Uh, so they were kind of refusing and kind of taunting them. So, so I get this call, we go back and the whole 
you know, cause we had Iraqis that protected our compound, you know, we had kind of like a mix cause it's, it's fairly large compound. So all of the guards are up in arms, our families up in arms, our main contact is, is up in arms and they're like wailing and which I'd never experienced before. So they're just like really emotional. And it's like, Hey man, tell, tell me what's going on and, and what we can do to, to try to fix this. It's like, Hey, our guy got killed. He got murdered and, um, and they got him, you know, he's at the morgue, he's at the hospital in Atomia and they won't give him back. And it's like, okay, so we're going to go get this guy. I promise we'll go get this guy. So we load up our vehicles, we go to the hospital and, uh, I say, Hey, you got one of our guys and we want him back. And, and the guy's like, you know, blows his mind. It's like, dude, are you crazy? Like, why would we have an American over here? Like, you know, this is crazy. I was like, I didn't say in America. I said, you got one of our guys, you got one of our Iraqis and we want him back. We're taking him back. And uh, he's like, Hey, whatever. The morgue is over here. You guys go identify your guy, get your guy and get him out of here. It's like, okay. So took our main guy and, and go into this morgue in a, in a combat zone. And after the Samara mosque bombing, it's a civil war. And I think I walked into like the worst of humanity, you know, just Mm. what I saw that day, I had a really hard time processing. And I still, I feel like I kind of tucked it away in the back corner of my mind but to this day, I still have a hard time of processing that sight of seeing the worst of humanity, of people being, you know, tortured and killed and all these type of things. Just the remnants of all of that was very hard to process for me. And I wanted to throw up and I wanted to kind of like get back out of there as soon as possible. But I knew I had to be strong and, and our team kind of had to be strong for for our family and for our guard force and, you know, that wanted their brother back. And, uh, I don't know how he did it, but we found the guy that had been murdered Jeez. and we were able to get his body, recover his body and we got it out of there. And, uh, but, you know, I just really had a hard time processing that. I, I, I kind of equate it to, you know, like maybe, um, like you hear like a police chief or a detective, a homicide detective that's been doing it for 20 years. It's like, this is the worst crime scene I've ever processed in 20 years. Like I've never seen anything like that. Like I feel like I had that moment in 2006 times a million because I just didn't really know how to process that. So um, I share that story to be a little bit vulnerable um, because I had a hard time dealing with that, like trying to process that. Like it's just a terrible thing to, to have to deal with. And, um, you know, I feel like I do a lot of self-care. I, I do a lot of treadmill and, um, things like that to just kind of help me, you know, but I, I do think there are, I wanted to, to kind of throw this out here as part of that story, because I know there's other guys that have had really bad experience, traumatic, just violent experiences that, that they may have a hard time dealing with. And, um, I know that our community has a lot of suicides and that breaks my heart. Um, but there is help out there. There's things that you can do. I, I'd like to say this one right here. There's a veterans crisis line, uh, 1-800-273-8255 for guys to get help. I think, uh, haven't you interviewed Tom Satterley? Have you done yeah. a podcast with Tom? Yeah. Great Tom's guy. a great, he's a great dude, man. Like I Delta know Tom's, Sergeant Major. 
yeah, Tom's out there trying to help people, you know, process these things. And uh, I just wanted to, to share that story. And, you know, it was a hard thing for me to process. It's just a tough thing. It's interesting that you say that because um, Ryan Hendrickson, who's another guy that I've interviewed, uh, former Green Beret, Silver Star recipient. He just read just, his book. Yeah. Tip of the Spear. Yep. Just read so it. I've, I've just been chatting with him. He's in Ukraine right now, um, going into places two days after the Russians withdraw to bring food and supplies and help people. And he was saying he spent a lot of his time in Afghanistan. And he's like, I've never seen carnage like this but he didn't have to walk into a morgue the way you described. Right. And that's what he's seen now. He's seen like bodies left on the road in bags. In some cases, like he went into Butcher right after they left horrible, what he's seeing right now. So I think like, we're not done with it. Unfortunately, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I know there's a lot of guys struggling and, and I think there's ways, you know, we got to get some guys, some help and, and things like that. But I would like to jump to, to 2007, just to kind of like wrap up, yeah. this thing with Adamia, you know, 2006 was, was so violent and in your face and, and constant, just a lot of death and a lot of destruction. And, um, so I went back to Iraq in 2007 and that was the rotation that you were talking about earlier, where we wow. really, really burn it down even more. But, um, one of our first targets in 07, you know, we were at Baghdad international airport, you know, we weren't in Adamia at Apache anymore, but so we're, you know, one of our first uh, one of our first targets was in Atomia. It was a, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device cell, a VBED cell. So, so we went in there and, and rolled that up and actually got the vehicles, got explosives. I don't know if they killed anybody on target. They probably did, but um, but that was you know Atomia would just continue to get worse. So in the uh, I think it was December of 06, there was actually a Medal of Honor recipient that that his action was from Adamia. And I think it was PFC Ross McGinnis um, was patrolling Adamia and they threw a grenade down. He was in a Humvee. He was the gunner. He had four people in the vehicle and he shielded it for his guys. And he saved, he saved everyone in the vehicle's life, but unfortunately he was killed. So, you know, he was a Medal of Honor recipient from Adamia. Fast forward to the summer of 07, uh, they had Bradley's they brought Bradley's in. They had a deep buried IED that was so large, it flipped a 30 ton Bradley over all the way over. It was so much explosives. It killed everyone in there. It trapped a kid. Uh, I mean, it killed five people. That was Adamia. As a result of that, that Bradley being flipped over 30 ton vehicle, they launched QRF. QRF came in. I think there was a female military police gunner was decapitated on the way in with an RPG. And then they brought in a chaplain to administer last rites for all the KIAs. Their vehicle hit a IED. And I think there was some wounded folks. I mean, and it, it, that was just like Adamia. Like it was just a lot of violence. Um, that happened there. God. Tough times. Yeah. Do you kind of follow it uh, through the years? Because it was such like an important part of your life. Like, did you, do you periodically see what happened there? Um, I mean, from time to time, I mean, I don't try to dwell yeah. on it, but uh, 
you know, I'll, I'll see, I mean, from what I saw that day that, that I really had a hard time processing, it's like, I don't know how you forgive people if, you know, yeah, like, and, and that's, yeah, like sometimes over the, I mean, America's had a, a pretty hard couple of years here, right? You know, we're, there's a lot going on and there's, um, you know, there's groups and a lot of fighting and things like that uh, back and forth. But it's just like, man, I, we, we don't ever want to go that far, man. Because uh, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, and yeah, it's tough. I've taken a lot of your time. I have just a couple more questions to round this out, if you don't mind. Okay. So first, let's, let's talk about what you're doing now. And I know we're about to jump past many years of service um, to where you are now. But you're in a really, in my opinion, and for those who have served, in a really amazing organization, the Medal of Honor Foundation. Why did you end up there? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's actually an interesting story. So, you know, when I retired, I was at a Fort Bragg and my first post-military job was uh, working at a museum, which I would have, you know, never guessed ever. But I was working at the Museum of the Bible. I was a director of security, director of operations for about three years. And then I took a position uh, still in D.C., as a security consultant with a great firm, uh, Thornton Thomas said he had a great job. And uh, I ended up relocating to Texas, still working uh, with Thornton Tomasetti, and um, heard a little bit about the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation and um, reached out, reached out to, to the CEO, actually a, a colleague reached out to the CEO and, and I was connected and and I was there just like, I want to help. Like, what, what can I do to help? Like, I, I can bring some security operations and museum experience. And, and uh, Chris Cassidy is the CEO. He's a former Navy SEAL, former astronaut, real, you know, just the, the crazy background. I mean, and then he's talking to someone that was a former Special Forces Green Beret that's got museum experience. And it's just like a really weird combo here. But uh, we just had a conversation and we hit it off really well because, you know, Chris was on the officer side in the teams and I was on the enlisted side. So I know how he works and he knows how I work. And and we just kind of really hit it off. Just I mean, just exceedingly well. And uh, and and after talking to Chris and it was like, you know, I think he had said something along the lines of like he's out in space. He's in space station. He's like, man, what do I want to do next? Like the this is getting ready to end. Like, you know, like I will, I still want to be able to contribute. I still want to serve. And I feel like the same way, like, you know, it's the national medal of honor museum foundation. I mean, uh, I mean, there wasn't a national, uh, medal of honor museum. Like, I don't know how that, yeah, how how that, that wasn't. Right? Yeah. How, how is that? I mean, um, but for Chris, it was just like, man, I really want to serve and I want, I want to still be able to contribute and give back. And I felt that too. It was like, wow you know, I could, I could serve. And, and there's so many different inspiring people that are part of this project, Chris Cassidy, Charlotte Jones. Um, there's a lot of folks on our board, uh, Mike Hayes. I mean, all the executive, I mean, these are just people that are so passionate and they're so patriotic and they want to do something great for the country. And the whole mission, as far as to inspire and unite people to hear some of these stories, I mean, it's just amazing. I wanted to be part of it. 
jealous that you are actually. It's just such a cool, just following it online and some of the posts that I see on social media, it's just so interesting what they're doing and I wish yeah. you guys all the best. And just so people are, who are listening, Daryl helped connect me with Chris to get him on. I mean, you'd say how many SEAL astronauts are there? And it's surprising that there's actually more than one, but still incredibly uh, impressive when you say he was in space, literally in space with NASA, you know? I think he's like one of, I think he's one of three and uh, I'm excited for you to do the podcast with Chris Cassidy. I can't wait to, to tune in. I was actually, and I'm really excited if you're able to talk, because have you had a medal of honor recipient on your podcast before? Not yet. No. Okay. Well, I think, I, I think that might be coming your way. I think, uh, I think Britt Slabinski is going to be able to come in and, and do a podcast with you. I think. Yep. And we're, we're coordinating. Yep. Totally understand. That, that would be amazing to have Chris Cassidy, to have Britt Slabinski. And I just listened to two of those. I just listened to both of them. They did a, like a, like an interview speaker type series thing. It was, it was really awesome. And the way that their careers have kind of crossed and they didn't even really know it, I think until they were on stage and they were talking amongst themselves that for Britt's action, uh, from 2002 in Afghanistan, where, you know, he was a Medal of Honor recipient. Chris Cassidy was there and was part of the QRF. And it all, I mean, I'll let you, I'll let them tell yeah, the story, wow. but it's fascinating. There's just the connections. And I think the, I think your audience, the folks that are out there listening, they are really going to get their money's worth to be able to listen to Chris Cassidy and Bris Lipinski for sure. Uh, I appreciate it. And we, we got to put in just one note here, because as I look online at the National Medal of Honor Foundation, um, they're sponsored. I don't know if sponsored even the right word, but the partnership Partners. with Black Rifle Coffee Company, which all the vets out there know of so well. It's just like some of the best energy marketing and uh, background that they bring. Uh, so there's a partnership there. I just want to make sure we talked about it for a moment. Oh yeah, man. Black Rifle Coffee. I mean, and there's a bunch more. I mean, American Airlines and the Texas Rangers and the Dallas Cowboys and Jones family. I mean, there's just so many different uh, folks out there that are that are pulling for us. Black Rifle Coffee is one of them. And, um, you know, as a military, you know, we we appreciate Black Rifle Coffee because they're they love veterans and uh, they support veterans and they put their money where their mouth is and and that's what they did for us. I mean, they have uh, I think you can see it in the background here yep. the the Medal of Honor roast, the medium roast coffee that they sell online, and 100 percent of the proceeds go go to the foundation. I mean, who does that? I mean, 100 percent of the proceeds go, and it's just man, it's just such a humbling humbling experience is awesome and of course i bought two bags like right away so uh i've been trying to tell everyone else like go get some coffee man i love it oh man okay so um i've taken up so much of your time i'm going to round you out with the last two questions i ask everybody daryl and then we'll get you out of here before yeah before we jump to that i just want to i want to give a plug uh you know we talked about uh black rifle coffee and the foundation things like that but if you really want to try to help and if you can do something for the organization if you go to mohmuseum.org backslash donate backslash uh any any contribution uh would help i mean whatever your heart feels like i mean it would be awesome uh we would be extremely grateful because we're trying to raise a lot of money to get this uh 
to get this museum built. So it would, it would be amazing if, if folks out there could do that. Please do. And we'll have the, uh, the link to that on the screen so people can check it out and in the description so they can uh, go and help this great cause. Okay, let's get to some questions, up. man. All right, here we go. Last two. And I know you spent a lot of time in combat. So first one that I love asking people is, is there anything that you carried with you into combat that had sentimental value, good luck charm, or something that someone gave you that you really wanted to have on you? Um, I, I carried, uh, I wore a, uh, a Baghdad fire department. It's kind of weird, a uh, fire department hat. And it had 343 on the back. And that represented uh, the firefighters that died on 9-11 because that was something that really hit my heart deep. You know, it's like, man, you know, when everything was was happening and those buildings were hit and people were scared and they didn't know what to do, you know, we had our firefighters that were running into that building going up those stairs, man. I mean, that's just, uh, oh gosh, it's like, I just, you know, yeah. it's, that's so deep. It hits my heart deep. And, uh, you know, that was kind of like something that I, that I just thought of, you know, just I mean, 343 firefighters to die. It's like, wow. I, I, so I did have that with me, uh, for a lot of my, my trips. And it was a ball cap. Yeah. It was a baseball yeah. hat. Yeah. And did I get, to, did you say the a Baghdad fire department? You yeah, it was the, a, yeah, it was, it had like Baghdad fire department, but they had the, like the, the 343 on the back was full interesting. Oh, yeah. that's really cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then the question I ask everybody, and I think I know because of the service you continue to do here, but um, especially with what you went through with your alive day, going through a morgue in the middle of a civil war at the height of our post 9-11 fight, uh, all the, the sacrifice and time you spent over there and the people you lost. Yeah. Looking back, would you go back and do that again? Yeah, man, absolutely. Uh, you know, for like we like we started out with humble beginnings, man. I mean, I came from nothing and <laughs> And I was able to, to rise through the military and to be where I'm at now. I mean, I, I would do it all over again in a second. I mean, it was a privilege. It was an honor to serve. Uh, got to serve with some great people. And, you know, I think we probably both lost a lot of good people, lost some friends. And, uh, but man, absolutely would, would do it again. And I think there's something to be said, like, you know, for, for some of the, the times that we're going through now is like, you know, we were so together, you know, like the 101st stories, you know, it's like, yeah, man, I will go out there and help you. Like there's a lot more that kind of binds us together than that separates us. And unfortunately it's kind of like where we're at right now, but, but, um, but there wasn't any of that. I mean, it, it wasn't like, well, Hey, uh, you guys need some help. And is it, are you guys Democrats? Are you Republicans? Know, uh, racial, you know, all that type of stuff. It was like, Hey man, we're all on the same team. We're going to help you because you're our brothers. Yeah. That and was I, important. Oh man. I, I would just say the more I've talked to you and the, the research here, like, I think you got a book in there somewhere, Daryl. So I hope that, uh, hope you can reconnect with some of these people. It sounds like you're in the right place to do it. So maybe well, one you, day we'll have a you book. You might here. have you might have to help me out with that book deal. And, uh, it'll, I mean, I think there's a bunch of more uh, really cool stories out yep. there, but I would like to say that the coolest thing I ever carried into combat as a bonus question yeah. was a South African gold Kruger Rand. Why would you How, have had one? Well, that was during the air war. We were doing uh, combat search and rescue. 
So we had like the escape and evasion. We had the blood shits. We had Deutschmarks. We had uh, we had U.S. dollars. We had a South African gold Krugerrand. I think we might have had two of them per person. And uh, man, I really I got to get me one of those one day. You know, <laughs> like there was no way anyone was leaving with those Krugerrands. <laughs> no like, way. You had to sign for those, but yeah. I just thought that was a cool little. That is story. awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well. Daryl, thanks so much for the time, man. This has been a blast. I knew it was going to be, but um, thanks for sharing all this with us and connecting us with some other great guests that we can have on here to share their stories. I appreciate it. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this combat story. I have a request for our listeners to spread the word about our Trust and Safety Institute and help us connect those who served with meaningful and great paying jobs after service. You've heard me and dozens of our guests talk about how difficult the transition is from service in the military and government to the private sector. Most of us, myself included, fail because we don't find a role that's fulfilling and pays the bills. I was fortunate enough to be recruited by Google into the trust and safety industry. I'd never heard of this industry before, but it's the perfect private sector role for those of us who want to keep helping people while taking the fight to bad actors. In trust and safety, much like I experienced in the military and CIA. You'll find yourself protecting people, but on the scale of billions and on huge platforms like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and hundreds more. You'll be fighting nation state threat actors pushing misinformation, terrorists trying to recruit online, pedophiles exploiting children, fraudsters scamming vulnerable groups, and more. You'll be in big tech getting paid a big tech salary. But best of all, you do not need to know how to code for this. And unfortunately, there's no training program for trust and safety. So we created one. It's called the Trust and Safety Institute. And if you want to get a job in this lucrative industry, check out our website at trustsafetyinstitute.com, also linked in the description, where we have a daily newsletter with everything important you need to know in the industry, daily job postings, and training courses to get you up to speed. We designed this for transitioning military, government, and law enforcement so that they can avoid the mistakes that many of us made, but it will be equally appealing for those who just want a job with more meaning and great pay. We want to give those transitioning the best opportunity possible, so we made it free for those with a .mil or .gov email address. Our Trust and Safety Institute is not a resource for just current or former service members, however. If you want a better paying job and more meaningful work in a rapidly growing industry, this will be a great resource to check out. So if I can ask one favor of our listeners, please share our website, trustsafetyinstitute.com, and this information for those that you know who are looking for a positive career change. Thanks. Thanks for listening. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our new Patreons. We got Brady Rico, Kevin AJ, Travis Slugger, MK, Terrence, Bart, Dan, and Ryan. Thank you for being a part of the community. For this episode, we'll have some additional footage from Daryl that he took while uh, he and his crew were downrange on the Patreon site. Um, if you were watching on YouTube or Spotify, you saw it in the intro, a portion of it. Got several more minutes of it at our Patreon site for you to take a look. It took me down memory lane for sure because every unit came up with one of these that put together a lot of pictures and footage that they had from their time 
downrange. So I hope you guys enjoy that too. Head over to patreon.com slash combat story. Thanks. Our first comment comes from YouTube on the Travis Norby interview, and it's from C. Lowe. Great episode. Thank you for giving us regular soldiers a chance to tell our stories as well. So many channels focus solely on operators. Not knocking on that as I looked up to those guys as heroes when I was a young 11 Bravo paratrooper. I still look up to those guys. The Ranger School thing is a big deal for sure with infantry officers. It was also a big deal for us younger enlisted back in the day. If we saw an LT without a tab, we immediately questioned his leadership. And when I got to the 82nd, all officers in E5 and up had better have had a tab. And uh, you'll recall from this this episode, Travis and I were talking about what a big deal it was to be uh, Ranger tabbed, both pre-9-11 and even afterwards. It's a huge step in anyone's journey, not just officers enlisted across the board. And I, I just distinctly remember how important that was. I obviously did not have one. I was a regular Army guy also um, as an aviator. But... You know, just being around these guys, it meant a lot to have that tab. And folks who didn't make it through had a tough time um, on their career afterwards. So we definitely touched on that with Travis. But I, I wanted to share this comment because it is us talking about what we say is the regular soldiers, the conventional side where I served. Um, these guys really had it so, so difficult going out there without the element of surprise, without all the assets overhead. And we want to recognize that because it's very real and it's the majority of people who are out there fighting for, you know, the past 20 years. So thank you for leaving that comment, CeeLo. Really appreciate it, brother. And our second comment is also on YouTube and it's on the Mike Sorelli interview and it's from Brandon Drake. He says, wow, what a great guest and interview by Ryan. I really think Combat Story with Ryan as the interviewer is the best podcast in the genre. His background, personality, and style is the gold standard of excellence. That is super humbling. I'm really appreciative uh, that you had to say that, Brandon. Um, obviously, with someone like Mike Sorelli, who is in Dev Crew, makes it a lot easier. Um, there's just so many opportunities there to, to strike pay dirt with him, with all of his experience and expertise, and how open he is about what he's doing now to help people. But I really appreciate you saying all that. It means a ton. Um, obviously there's a lot that goes into making this that takes away from what else I, I might be doing with my family, but I know that giving back to the community and sharing these stories means a lot, not just to y'all, but to me too. So thanks for taking the time to share. That means a ton for me and uh, I hope you all stay safe out there. Thank you.